The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When Celia comes, tis earthquake hour. The bed vibrates like kettle drums. It is a grand display of power when Celia comes. When Celia farts, my hasty nose sniffs up the fragrance from her pots. Shamed are the violets and rose when Celia farts. Hey guys, uh, that's a little ditty I put together this week. I hope you like it. Hope you hope you love it. I, I worked real hard on it. Uh, no, no, this is one of 20th century occultist Aleister Crowley's poems. Uh, titled, as you might guess, When Celia Fots. Not exactly the kind of poem I heard growing up in English lit class. Uh, would have been a huge crowd pleaser in eighth grade. Uh, who am I kidding? It would have been a crowd pleaser uh, between sixth and uh, grade and sophomore year of college. Maybe not wildly scandalous today, but Alistair was writing poems like that at the dawn of the 20th century when he had to pen them under a pseudonym and publish them via foreign presses to avoid being arrested in Victorian-era Britain on obscenity charges. Alistair Crowley was an infamous Satanist in the sense that he worshipped evil and wanted, among other things, to bring the devil himself into this world. Now, many modern Satanists will dispute this label. They say he was no Satanist at all. They tend to base this uh, thought on Anton LaVey founding the Church of Satan roughly 20 years after Crowley's passing, but that's just semantics. You don't get to redefine the term uh, Satanist and then assert that your new meaning is now the only acceptable definition of said term. Crowley was a Satanist in the sense that he wanted to bring down Christianity. He opposed it strongly. He, just, he also didn't believe in it. He, was an, he had an interesting set of beliefs. He didn't believe, but at the same time, uh, did believe in malevolent spirits and sentient beings living in other dimensions, beings that he knew Christians would refer to as demons, one demon uh, being the equivalent of the devil, being Beelzebub. And he wanted and actually tried to invoke these actual demons and bring them into our world. Who was this dark, strange man? And how was he able to leave the mark he did on Western culture? All is revealed, the great beast exposed, and more Celia-esque wackadoodle poetry and writings and musings today on Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. 
What's up, time suckers and space lizards? I'm Dan Cummins, a.k.a. the Prophet of Nimrod, a.k.a. Suckmaster, a.k.a. the Missing Eye of Bojangles. And this is Time Suck. Recording from a hotel room in Brea, California today, but the sound of the suck will be polished up by the Reverend Dr. Krell in scenic Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, before it hits your ear membranes. So if you if you do hear any little different ambient noises, you're like, oh, it sounds like the acoustics are a little different. Well, that's that's why. Had to do a different location this week. Monday will be the same location. Uh, circumstances dictate. Got to record some of these on the road. Uh, got, got to be on the Church of What's Happening Now with Joey Coco Diaz. What an awesome time, man, just the other day. Uh, that episode is out now. And was also a guest on the Adam Carolla Show. Uh, so fun to be on two of the biggest comedy podcasts out there just uh, same week. I remember listening to uh, Adam uh, many times uh, when he was on Love Lines uh, many years ago on FM Radio. If, if you snuck over uh, to the suck from, from either show, man, thank you, thank you, thank you. I hope you stay. hope you have a good time. Uh, recording an episode of The Tinfoil Hat with Sam Tripoli later today. Love that wackadoodle. Uh, he's my favorite conspiracy nuts. A lot of fun podcasting this week. Hail Nimrod. More shows at Brea at the Improv this weekend, and then back to my wife's hometown, back in uh, Cleveland at Hilarities, March 22 through the 24th. You fucking get there, Cleveland. You show up. Uh, Salt Lake City, April 20 through the 21st. Charlotte, Atlanta, Birmingham, Huntsville, Dallas, uh, Houston, and now in San Antonio, all part of the 2018 Flat Earth Tour. More dates at DanCummins.tv. Also, hoodies and pullovers have been restocked in the store, finally. I know those has been out for a while. Now they're back. More Secret Suck shirts uh, are being ordered. And new stickers have been ordered. Uh, yeah, new stickers I'm very excited about. Vinyl decals uh, being ordered. Keeping the suck train moving down the tracks. And now, Aleister Crowley. Aleister Crowley would be born into, into wealth, really, into, into a typical Victorian British Christian culture. Uh, he, he would come to despise. He would die uh, virtually penniless and uh, basically alone in a, in a post-Victorian world that largely despised him. Uh, he was a polarizing man. He was a poet, an author, an occultist, an artist, mostly a mystic. He created his own religion, uh, Thelema, whose guiding core principle is do what thou wilt. Right? Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Love is the law, love under will. There is no law beyond do what thou wilt. Crowley, a.k.a. the Great Beast, as he himself liked to be called, became infamous for his scandalous ways. He did a, he did a lot of what he wilt, uh, which involved a lot more than dirty poetry. And, uh, you know, he has name recognition today, mostly via living on through pop culture. Heavy metal pioneer Ozzy Osbourne released a tribute to Alistair called Mr. Crowley in 1980 on his debut solo release, Blizzard of Oz. It's made a variety of top uh, 50 most influential metal songs of all time lists. The Beatles included Mr. Crowley alongside dozens of other influential figures on the cover of their Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album. David Bowie was fascinated with Crowley, referencing him in uh, lyrics. And uh, you can see in the, in the way he dressed during some of his Ziggy Stardust kind of era costumes, very Crowley-esque, Led Zeppelin tool. So, so many uh, somewhat obscure Scandinavian metal bands have been heavily influenced uh, or have been obsessed or both with Aleister Crowley. He's become very influential, especially after his death and kind of Western culture's mainstream break from religion. You know, especially during the 60s counterculture revolution, uh, he, his name uh, and kind of ethos would make a resurgence. He would influence, you know, Timothy Leary, amongst others, as part of that kind of revolution. And that's why we're looking into him today. So let's get to know this strange, strange man with a lengthy deep dive of a Time Suck timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck timeline. 
Edward Alexander Crowley was born at 30 Clarendon Square in the Royal Leamington Spa, Warwickshire, England, on October 12th, 1875. And he was born into a life of comfort and luxury. His father, Edward Crowley, 46, at the age of Alistair's birth, was trained as an engineer, but due to his share of a lucrative family brewing business, Crowley's Alton Ales, uh, a business that would last from 1821 until 1947, that's a, that's a damn good run, uh, he was already retired before his son was born. Uh, he had a strained relationship with his mother, Emily Bertha Bishop, who would nickname her apparently unruly child, The Beast, guessing this Christian woman would come to really regret that nickname years later when he became the most notorious occultist of his era. A young Edward's childhood was filled by a combination of the lack of financial concern and yet uh, no real earthly enjoyment of that wealth. His family was extremely conservative. Both parents uh, were members of the Exclusive Brethren, an, an offshoot of the Plymouth Brethren. Now, the Plymouth Brethren are alive and well, by the way. Uh, they seem to exist mainly in the UK and Australia, uh, headquartered in Ermington, Australia. But they also exist to some degree in the US, Canada, Caribbean, elsewhere in Europe, Argentina. Uh, it originated in Dublin in the 1820s as an offshoot of Anglicanism. And it seems a little wackadoodle. Uh, for example, discipline among brethren may involve formal social ostracism or shunning to various degrees, uh, depending on uh, you know what kind of brethren group it is. For instance, people placed under discipline may not uh, may be asked to not attend any group functions, which are purely social. May uh, people may decline to eat, you know, around them, even shake hands with them when people are under discipline. That's fucking really you're gonna you're gonna shame sinning adult members of the congregation by not shaking their hands. Because because they've been naughty, you're gonna shun them. Get the fuck out of here. I hate that stuff. You know what? What happened to forgiveness and the church being a shelter in the storm, a light in the darkness, place of solace for the good and the wicked alike? These people sound super judgy. Uh, reasons for being put under discipline on the naughty list uh, by both the open and exclusive brethren uh, include disseminating a gross scriptural or doctr- uh, doctrinal error. That's that's all you can read a lot into that, you know. So basically, if you don't believe in in their exact interpretation of scripture or question it in any way, you're, you're under discipline now. Get get in the corner, face face the corner. Don't don't look at anyone in the eye. Uh, if you're if you're involved in anything, you know that's uh, deemed sexually immoral, including adultery, uh, homosexual acts. Yep, total homophobes. Uh, premarital sex. And you're, then you're on the naughty list. Get in the fucking corner. Uh, if you're being accused of uh, irregular or illegal financial dealings, you can be put under discipline. Uh, extreme cases, members may be asked to shun or divorce members of their own family, members of their immediate family. So, oh, man, not a fan of that. Not a fan of when the church is like, nope, you can't talk to your dad anymore. Can't talk to your daughter. Uh-uh. Okay, Scientology. Take it easy. Uh, I should add that the church does not consider itself denominational. So there is no firm hierarchy, and various churches can institute policies as they see fit. So if you are a member and your church is way more relaxed, you might be like, that's not true. That's not how we act. Well, maybe that's not how your congregation acts, but others do. Um, and and, and the, yeah, I just feel like this is important to add just to give kind of the tone of his childhood, of Crowley's childhood. It doesn't doesn't sound like a, a like he was going to a real fun church. And this is back in Victorian era England, so you know it was way more strict than it is now. doesn't sound like he's going to a place where he's singing songs about uh, God's love and forgiveness. sounds like it's a little more, little more fire and brimstone. Uh, however, both of young Edward's parents super into it, and and so is he. The family's hardcore. They don't they don't celebrate Christmas because it's too pagan. Mm-mm, not in this house. Uh, neither of them uh, ever have a job when young Edward is alive. You know because they they already got their money, so it gives them a ton of free time to kind of throw into their faith, which uh, isn't always good. Um, Edward Senior even be, became a preacher, traveling to nearby towns to, to preach the good word on February 20, uh, February twenty ninth, nineteen. 
1880, 1980, that'd be a weird time jump. On February 29th, 1880, when young Eddie is four, the Crowleys bring a second child into the world, Grace, who only lasts a few hours. She dies the same day. Uh, she only lived for five hours. First of many early childhood deaths in this tale, by the way. Uh, how tragic for her poor parents. Uh, he would remain an only child after that. And Crowley would later say he remembered being taken to see the, the body of Grace. And in his own words, he would say, The incident made a curious impression on me. I did not see why I should be disturbed so uselessly. I couldn't do any good. The child was dead. It was none of my business. Uh, this cold, kind of logical, heartless attitude, man, continued throughout his life. Uh, the incident, I'm strongly guessing, pushed the Crowleys deeper into their faith. You know, they now became pathologically anti-pleasure. They were constantly warning young Edward against sin and constantly reminding him of the consequences. Hell, hell is the consequence. So, you know, home life takes dip as far as fun goes after sis dies. Uh, and yet early on in his childhood, little Eddie didn't seem to mind. Yeah, he didn't mind all this preaching. He, it was what he knew. It was his world. As a young child, he, he wasn't rebellious, actually. The, the beast persona would emerge later. He was, a, he was a daddy's boy. He was devoted to his father, and as a child, he wanted to follow in his father's footsteps. He wanted to possibly be a, you know, a preacher himself, inspired by his father's faith. You know, as a, he, he became a, a fervent little brother, Plymouth brother. He studied the Bible eagerly. Uh, the prophetic passages in the book of Revelation, you know, the beast 666, the scarlet woman, those particular passages, you know, fascinated him especially. He readily imagined himself a servant of God, just like his father, battling Satan in his hordes. He'd later save his dad. Years later, when he was deep into the occult, he would say, my father, as wrong-headed as he was, had humanity and a degree of common sense. I always, always liked dad. I always gave some respect to dad. And then on March 5th, 1887, when little Eddie is only 11, Ed Sr. pulls a dick move and he dies of tongue cancer. Jesus, man. Fatal tongue cancer in the late 19th century had to have been a motherfucker of a way to go out. I can only imagine what kind of treatments old-timey doctors were prescribing. Just, yeah, I reckon it's time we stick a bunch of leeches on your lung. Yeah, I want you to take opium in the morning, uh, laudanum in the evening, uh, both oral and suppository forms, and, uh, and I may have to cut off, I'll probably have to cut off one of your legs. And yes, even in merry old Victorian England, doctors talked like old-timey horse thieves. Uh, the death of his father was a pivotal moment in young Edward's life. I became angry with God. How could God take the life of the man so devoted to him? It wasn't fair. He denounced the church, and then he denounced his mother along with it, who threw herself even harder into the church. And, and I feel like, had his father just not died, no one would be talking about Aleister Crowley today. I know I've said it a million times in this show, but it's always fascinating to me when you have these moments, these pivotal moments where had this one thing not happened— the person never would have got put on the trajectory that led them to becoming famous, infamous, notorious, whatever. You know, there would, there would be no, there would literally be no Alistair because he would never change his name later, you know, in kind of anger. Uh, Emily and young uh, Edward moved in with her brother, uh, Eddie's uncle, Tom Bishop, in the Drayton Garden section of London later that year, and it didn't go well. Young Crowley, uh, not a fan of Uncle Tom. He later described him pretty poorly, saying, No more cruel fanatic, no mean of villain ever walked the earth. So, you know, uh, they weren't going to grab beers, you know, together uh, after he left the house, you know, years, years, years afterwards. Uncle Tom ran a household so strict, he even forbade uh, young Edward from reading David Copperfield. Didn't want him reading Dickens' David Copperfield because uh, there was a certain character in that work named Emily, and this might cause Crowley to disrespect his mother due to her sharing the same name. <laughs> so that guy sounds like a lot of fun. Frustrated under his uncle's authoritarian rule, angry over his father's untimely death, young Crowley starts to rebel and become the beast, to become quite the disturbed young man. He described a childhood incident years later in his autobiography, The Confessions of Aleister Crowley, <laughs> so fucked up. He says, I therefore caught a cat, and having administered a large dose of arsenic, I chloroformed it, hanged it above the gas jet, stabbed it, cut its throat, smashed its skull, 
and, when it had been pretty thoroughly burnt, drowned it and threw it out of the window, that the fall might remove the ninth life. In fact, the operation was successful. I had killed the cat. <laughs> Jesus, yeah, I think, I think so. Overkill. Way overkill. Fairly sadistic. Uh, man, the, tor- the torture and murder of neighborhood pets. Never a good indication uh, of future positive behavior. That shit doesn't seem to come up in the biographies of people like Warren Buffett, you know, Oprah Winfrey. Can you imagine? Can you imagine Oprah talking about doing that, about chloroforming, hanging, stabbing, burning, drowning, smashing, and tossing a cat out a window? As a little girl, I, I knew I wanted to achieve more than anyone in my family ever had. One day after returning to my mother's home in Milwaukee, sick of bouncing back and forth between my parents' homes, never feeling truly wanted in either place, I became... So angry that I motherfucked my neighbor's cat to death. I smashed that piece of shit skull. And then, you know, and then later I'd move into more charity. And <laughs> no, it's like, it never happens. And I know that didn't sound anything like Oprah. Uh, if any of you listening did something similar as a kid, uh, you're going to have to probably work the rest of your life on keeping your inner psychopath in check. Uh, pushing young Crowley's youthful anger and deviant behavior into a religious direction is one Reverend H. Diossi Champney. The Reverend Dr. Champney ran the Sons of Brethren Christian School in Cambridge. Crowley described his time as a boyhood in hell. And, and it doesn't sound like he was extremely well-liked by the students there. He was often placed in solitary, you know, for misbehavior. See, that's what I was talking about earlier. A little bit of that brethren discipline. They love to isolate people. Uh, once placed in solitary, neither student nor master could speak to him or he to them. He received only bread and water to eat. You know, during play hours, he, he walked around and around the schoolroom during work hours. He was placed alone on the playground, so they just kept him fucking ostracized. The strain of this isolation apparently affected his health, affected his kidneys, and he had to leave school altogether for a couple of years. His health deteriorating uh, to the point that doctors were afraid he would die in his teens. Once, he, uh, once it was discovered he had a kidney disorder, uh, he was placed back in school. And then the other, the other boys, I guess, would bully him unmercifully. You know, his kidneys were, were regarded as, uh, you know, one of the best places to kind of punch him. <laughs> my fucking kids, man. I remember kidney shots. Oh my God. Man, to this day, you know, just from getting like, I think from like middle school, just like leftover vestiges of middle school, uh, you know, tomfoolery. I do not like having my head smacked. And I fucking hate having my kidneys tapped at all. Like it just takes me right back to junior high. Somebody like whopping you in the back of the head. Oh, I was a tiny kid. You know, I was <laughs> not anybody who wanted to whop me could whop me. Oh my God. So that sucked for him. Early 1892, the 16-year-old Crowley's sexual life began, and it took a deviant turn pretty quickly, which is fitting, considering his later behavior. He lost his virginity to a theater girl when he was 16, fairly normal, but then his next sexual encounter was with the family parlor maid. Not as normal, uh, but I get it. But then he had sex uh, with her on his mother's bed. That's where they had sex, which, uh, that's a statement. That's a statement, fuck. You know, he blamed the repressive nature of his home for pushing him towards this magical affirmation of my revolt. Well, this magical affirmation, uh, you know, just um, <laughs> he's pretty happy about it. He's pretty excited to, to have had her on his mother's very bed, he'd say. And I got him interested in sex magic later, as we'll find out, this, this concept of his. Later the same year, he was expelled from school for contracting gonorrhea from a prostitute. That seems like a strange thing for your school to find out about, you know, let alone expel you for, but that's what happened. Around the age of 18, in 1893, Crowley received an initial inheritance. I think this is another pivotal moment kind of in his, in his life. I feel like had this not happened, he also wouldn't have gone on the path he did. He received uh, somewhere between 30 and 40,000 pounds, equivalent to about uh, 500,000 pounds today. So, you know, nice little head start. Nice little head start. He invested most of it in real estate. Bought a few townhouses, uh, rented them out. He took some of uh, the rest. He became a silent partner in another successful pub. 
kind of expanded. You know, his, his, his family's kind of brewery background. He used the remainder to go to school where he studied business. And by the time he graduated, he had almost doubled his inheritance through shrewd, shrewd investments. And get the fuck out of here. He didn't, this isn't the life of a decent, sensible person we're talking about. We're talking about an irresponsible hedonist. He didn't do any of that. No, no. He joined some mountaineering club. He'd do mountaineering off and on throughout his youth. He'd be actually fairly successful at it. And he just heads off to the Swiss Alps and dicks around for a while climbing mountains, which is exactly what you do when you have a trust fund. He didn't earn that money. Why not just go fuck around with it? 1895. It's weird, the mountaineering thing. A lot of people point to that as like this big, impressive thing with him. Yes, but like asterisks. Whenever like like at 18, you just don't ever have to work. And then you do something like some some hobby, kind of like that, especially in the uh, pioneering phase of it. And then you do something successful. I'm always like, yeah, kind of pressed, impressed. But it's like the, mostly the reason you were able to be successful at mountaineering is because you never had to pay any goddamn bills. Right, I'm sure a lot of us could be pretty successful at some weird like hobby if we had literally no other responsibilities in life. Anyway, 1895, Crowley began studying at Trinity College at Cambridge where he studied science, literature, philosophy. He passed a special examination in chemistry in 1898, leaves school early during his final spring term without bothering to get a degree. Uh, another very trust fund kid type decision. He becomes Alistair in college, changing his name from Edward. He would explain the logic behind the change in, you know, years later saying, for many years, I had loathed being called Alec, partly because of the unpleasant sound and sight of the word, partly because it was the name by which my mother called me. So many mommy issues. And she called him that, you know, because his middle name was Alexander, and her husband, before he died, was also named Edward. So it makes sense, you know. You got two Eds in the house. You can call one Alexander. Edward did not seem to suit me, and the diminutives, Ted and Ned, were even less appropriate. Alexander was too long. And Sandy suggested toe hair and freckles. I had read in some book or other that the most favorable name for becoming famous was one consisting of a dactyl, followed by a spondy, as at the end of a hexameter, like Jeremy Taylor. Alistair Crowley fulfilled these conditions, and Alistair is the Gaelic form of Alexander. And by the way, dactyl is a metrical foot beat of a, in a line of poetry, consisting of one long and then two short syllables, uh, or of one stressed and then two unstressed syllables, such as uh, tenderly. A spondy is a metrical foot consisting of two long or stressed syllables, such as downtown, an equal amount of stress on each syllable. I don't know that I pull it off in, in any word. I feel like I'm always stressing one syllable. A hexameter is a line of verse consisting of six metrical feet. An example would be Henry Wadsworth, uh, Wadsworth Longfellow in, in, in Evangeline, a little piece of this, you know. Now had the season returned when the nights grow colder and longer, and the retreating sun the sign of the scorpion enters. Birds of passage sailed through the leaden air from the icebound. Desolate northern bays to the shores of tropical islands. Uh, so, you know, I guess there's, there's six beats there. There's six little, you know, moments there, basically separated by commas or periods, each one of them. Uh, for those of you, you know, who didn't just fall asleep. Ah, what kind of poem was that? I, I, I didn't know any of this shit, by the way. I had to look it all up. Total English lit thing to do, by the way. Change your name to realign it to like a common poetic rhythm. Such a, such a again, like trust fund, 19 year old, 20 year old. <laughs> you know, like English lit. I was an English minor in college. I can see like like some of the drama kids doing something like this. I will not be called Pam anymore. I am I am uh, Aphrodites. I am Aphrodites now. I'm Aphrodites uh, Ballister, uh, Esquire. Um, Alistair continues to adopt it would satisfy my romantic ideals. The atrocious spelling Alistair was suggested as the correct form by my cousin Gregor, who ought to have known better. In any case, I love when you're critiquing random family members, you know, for your name. My, like, my middle name's Brent, you know? It's be like, my aunt gave me the middle name Brent, which is a common man's name, when I, I uh, should have been given something more, you know, respective of my great birth. 
like Nathaniel the Great. Daniel Nathaniel the Great Cubbins would have been what I preferred. Oh, these fucking pretentious bastards. <laughs> so then he goes, in any case, Alice Dare makes a very bad dactyl. For these reasons, I saddled myself with my present nom de guerre. I can't say that I feel sure that I facilitated the process of becoming famous or that it facilitated the process of becoming... I should doubtless have done so, whatever name I had chosen. So, you know, he was an eccentric and fucking pretentious cat. <laughs> Alistair uh, also did some sexual experimenting while in college, uh, beginning a homosexual relationship with uh, uh, Jerome Pollitt in October 1897 that would last for months. Crowley would later write that I lived with Pollitt as his wife for some six months, and he made a poet out of me. Oh, that's how you become a poet. I thought you had to, like, study poetry and just, you know, just kind of, like, work on your craft. <laughs> Turns out you you just have to be a dude's wife. That is how you just – you need some dick. Dick gives you poetry. I, I didn't – I had no idea. Uh, Crowley would later reflect on this relationship in his book, The Scented Garden of Abdullah, the Satirist of Shiraz, which was part homoerotic parody, part mystical text. Uh, only 200 copies were ever printed, and, and most were destroyed upon seizure after being published due to the filth inside, the naughty wickedness, the carnal sins of the flesh. So, uh, you know, if you can find a, an original of this book, I'm guessing that's worth some coin. The book is full of interesting tidbits, such as a man can afford to a man two pleasures which a woman cannot give him, namely, one, passive sodomy, pleasure of the pathic, two, illumination, pleasure of the philator. Uh, if you're confused, let me break that down for you. This was a very sophisticated way of him saying, look, uh, dude, chick can't do everything a dude can do with the dude, okay? She can't stick her dick in a dude's butt. She can't slap a man wiener in his mouth. Maybe that's oversimplifying it. I, I, <laughs> I love the new words, especially new dirty words. Hail Lucifina. And, and I can't ever recall coming across a, a rumination before. It's defined uh, on one medical dictionary site as the active thrusting of a man's penis into or between one or more partner's body parts, including legs, breasts, feet, upper thighs, abdomens, <laughs> throat, and mouth. Unlike fellatio in which the fellator is the active stimulator. Ah, uh, man, <laughs> sounds, sounds creative, sounds fun. So many places to thrust your ween. I wouldn't even, man, haven't thought of some of those. So much ruminating to be done. What a, what a great form of birth control, man. Don't have to worry about unexpected pregnancy when you're, when you're doing some armpit ruminating. Just what in God's name are you doing to the small of my back? Why, well, I'm just ruminating it. R really? Well, it feels like you're aggressively thrusting your dick into my spine. Well, that's exactly what I'm doing. It's delightful. Uh, anyway, uh, Alistair and Mr. Pollitt break up, as young people often do due in part to Pollitt's unwillingness to take part in Crowley's growing interest in mysticism. Now, Crowley uh, would occasionally denounce this relationship later in life, but it always comes across as kind of jilted lover talk, you know, kind of sour grapes kind of stuff. Uh, sounds like Pollitt, you know, pulled out just in time, pun intended, because in 1897, Crowley uh, con contracted uh, syphilis. Uh, he, al he also self-published his first book while in school around this time in Cambridge, uh, A Seldoma, A Place to Bury Strangers In. It featured a volume of pornographic verses called White Stains. Oh, man, classic Crowley. He had to publish it in Amsterdam under the pseudonym George Archibald Bishop, and it was scandalous for Victorian England, containing tawdry verses such as, I will kiss thee and fondle and woo thee and mingle my lips into thine. That shall tingle and thrill through and through thee as the draught of the flame of wine. I will drink of the font of our pleasure, licking round and about and above till its streams pour me out their full measure, O Lucius, love. And it had some sacrilege, 
Some stuff like, Hell is the house of all delight. Heaven is the home of bitter blight. Pain is our joy and our spirit's power. Never shall fade its fiery flower. Oh, so much fucking angry emo kid right there. So much goth teen. So much dark tr- trench coat. Uh, and, <laughs> and then he gets a little naughtier with my favorite. Uh, free women cast a lustful eye on my gigantic charms and seek by word and touch with me to lie and vainly proffer cunt and cheek. Ooh, so naughty. Cunt always sounds so much less offensive uh, to me when it's said with an accent, right? Doesn't it? And, and throwing proffer in front of it? Mmm. Really classing up the cunt there. Uh, also in 1897, Crowley reads Karl von Eckertshausen's uh, The Cloud Upon the Sanctuary and becomes fascinated with the existence of secret societies, which would lead him to soon seek them out. Uh, Eckartshausen, an 18th century German Catholic mystic, presented the mystical thesis uh, that there exists this invisible and interior church, or a society of the elect, and that it exists quite apart from any established church. And, and Karl believed that this secret society had existed from the very beginning of time, the dawn of man, and was presently alive and well, and would one day openly rule the world. Space lizards! We are coming. I mean, I mean, I mean, they are coming. Those those people, not us. Interesting note: uh, Eckhart Tausen would would join that initial mysterious group, the original Illuminati. He was an OG Illuminati member, man, pretty dope. That was the original secret group founded by Adam Weishaupt, uh, the Illuminati man, conspiring to overthrow the church and rebirth the earth under a new world order. And then, you know, the, the reality is shortly after its creation, the head of Bavaria banned secret societies, members were arrested, blah, 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 it fragmented and it went away, or lives to this day and is under constant investigation via the watchful third eye of David Icke. Well, in May of 1998, uh, Crowley leaves Cambridge, uh, makes a resolution that he will find the hidden church, the secret assembly of chiefs, alluded to by Eckhartshausen. Now, that's a red flag uh, for wackadoodles right there, for being a wackadoodle. That's one of the many ways you know someone has become or is becoming a complete wackadoodle uh, when they drop out of college to dedicate their life to finding secret societies. Also very trust fund. Uh, but yeah, never good. Um, never, never makes the parents happy. Emily, how, how's your son Edward these days? Well, Judith, uh, he goes by Alistair, and he's just dropped out of Trinity College to find a secret society that controls the fate of uh, humanity. How's um how's Charles? Oh, um he's uh he's a doctor now and I, I must I must be going. I really must be going. Uh just as he's leaving Cambridge, Crowley joins the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, an organization devoted to the study and practice of the occult, metaphysics, paranormal activities. And these, these groups were, you know, fairly common, you know. If we we've we talked in some other ones like the Harry Houdini kind of episode, you know, roughly around this same time frame where, you know, this is when like uh, people are doing seances. You know, and they're having all these like tarot cards and all the psychics. That, that stuff is like really in vogue now. Now, this particular order, this Order of the Golden Dawn, uh, who are the founders of this order? Freemasons. Of course they were. Space lizards always pulling the lizard strings from the darkness of the Freemasons. Uh, Crowley was allowed in as a neophyte of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Um, uh, he was, he was, uh, the, the evening of November 18th, 1898, the Mark Mason's Hall in London was when he was indoctrinated. Uh, the rites and rituals practiced in this order would go on to influence modern Wicca and Thelema, Alistair's religion. Oh, man, to be a fly on the wall at that place, man, grownups practicing a little magic, wearing some costumes. That sounds like some A++++, like top shelf people watching, like the fucking best. I'm inherently far too skeptical and sarcastic to ever be a member of something like that and you know, take it seriously. Like, I might be able to do, like, a Freemason, right? You know, I could see, like, you know, getting in, maybe. 
but I, I would potentially be the worst member of, you know, if they get too into the weird, like, costumes and stuff. Just, Mr. Cummins, could you please stop giggling? We're trying to focus on some necromancy. <laughs> Sorry, it's a, it's, a, it's a pointy hat. I, I can't I can't look at you wearing that pointy hat and, and not laugh. Stop smirking, at least. Can you at least put the wand down? I mean, there's fucking, there's no way I can look at you wearing a pointy hat and holding a wand at 50 years old and not at least smirk. Yeah, give me a smirk. Uh, well, Alistair does not smirk, does not giggle. He loves it. He immediately begins to rise to the outer circle of this order. He's all in. And by the end of the year, he begins to develop an obsession with completing the operation of um, Abram, Abramelin, Abramelin, which involves six months of seclusion devoted to an ever-heightening discipline of meditation, prayer, and study. And if you do it right, you can conjure your own guardian angel, uh, angel into this plane of existence. And then once you've uh, conjured this angel, uh, he tells you how to bind or overcome various demons that are keeping you from getting everything you want in life or some shit. Also, once you complete this ritual, uh, believers think you have the ability to master a whole new level of spells now. They, <laughs> they cover people really believe, they cover a diverse range of abilities from like flight, resurrection, shape shifting, ah, Jesus, d- divination, access to hidden knowledge. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> people actually are studying this stuff thinking, pretty soon I'll be able to shape shift and fly and fly around the astral project. Man, it's like you're like you're like a level seven human mage now with neutral alignment or possibly a necromancer. You, you have a plus seven in religion on your character sheet. You have a plus five in wisdom. So many extra hit points, you guys. So you get a plus two in charisma. You get a plus seventeen in wackadoodle. Ah, oh, this shit is just like last week, man. It's like so D and D. In the spring of eighteen ninety nine, Crowley meets Alan Bennett. One of the most esteemed members of the Golden Dawn at a ritual at Mark Mason's Hall. Bennett and Crowley start experimenting <laughs> with magic on their own. That's a huge red wackadoodle flag. When you and another dude start doing your own experimenting with magic. How's Alistair these days, Emily? Is it, it is still Alistair, isn't it? It, it is, Judith. And he's splendid. He's j- <laughs> he's joined an order of uh, dark magicians after dropping out of university, so we're quite pleased about that. And now he and another magician have set out to practice a little magic on their own. I believe they're working on some kind of some kind of necromancy, some kind of shape-shifting spell at the moment. Can I get you some more tea? Oh, I must be leaving again, Emily. You must be terribly proud, though. You must be terribly proud. Uh, Bennett introduces Crowley to drug use as part of practicing magic. Uh, the explorations undertaken by Bennett and Crowley went beyond the confines of second-order magic to take in the possibilities of alternative consciousness by means of drugs. <laughs> It just gets more and more like weird trust fundy kid where it's like, really? Now you're fucking just hanging out, working on your spells and then you're justifying drug use for your magic. Oh, you know, they're wearing like black robes and shit. Uh, interesting note, the social atmosphere and legal consequences of drug experimentation in that period were very different from our own. There, there was already a strong kind of 19th century tradition of using drugs as a means to explore the human mind. So this was really, that part really wasn't that scandalous, man. It's kind of a, you know, weird sign of the times where at that era, you know, during that era of pornography, extremely taboo. Extremely taboo in Victorian England, but you know narcotics. Yeah, whatever, man. That's just that's just fucking life. Yeah, of course you're taking some laudanum. Of course you're taking some opium. Feels good. Uh, Bennett was seriously into drugs. He was in poor health, suffering from asthma, which he treated by first taking opium orally, and then after a week or two, uh, switching up to shooting up morphine. And then he started doing coke, <laughs> like drink this cocaine, laudanum stuff. And then when he started to that started to cause him to hallucinate, he went on to inhaling chloroform. Oh man, and this and this was like doctors were prescribing these treatments. You know, I'm I'm no doctor, but that sounds like a horrible way to treat asthma. Yeah, I'm pretty sure no one's asthma has ever gotten better from them doing heroin, so much coke they started to hallucinate, and then sniffing a lot of chloroform. 
just you know like like going back in for your checkup later when you don't feel any better what your asthma is way worse have you been smoking heroin you've been smoking your have you been shooting it up have you been putting it in a needle and shooting it in your veins huh and you've been drinking lots of cocaine enough to hallucinate hmm and sniffing the chloroform just really taking deep deep breaths filling your lungs with nothing but chloroform and you still don't feel well well that's peculiar Hmm, it's almost as if I have no idea how to treat maladies. As if I have no idea how to treat patients for actual diseases. Uh, Later in 1899, Crowley gets into a fight with another member of the Golden Dawn, uh, the famed poet William Butler Yeats. Yeats outranks Crowley within the order and doesn't like Crowley, and Yeats helps get Crowley tossed out. Fucking nerd fight. It's a wizard duel, everyone. Get your corners, grab your wands. Get ready to recite your spells. Crowley would later claim he got tossed out for criticizing the order or because they were just playing at magic. Right, he didn't think they were taking it uh, seriously enough. That's another huge wackadoodle red flag. When you get kicked out of an order of dark magicians for being angry at them, then they're not taking the dark magic seriously enough. That's when you know you're a complete weirdo. <laughs> like you are an odd human being. Uh, January fifth, fifteenth, nineteen hundred, Crowley kicked out of the London Order and moves to Paris to study his magic, to further study his magic under the tutelage of another exiled Order member, another person who didn't think they were taking it seriously enough. British occultist Samuel uh, Liddell Mathers. I'll just, I'll take my black magic across the pond. Thank you very much. While in Paris, Mathers and Crowley decide that they're going to return to London and they're going to take back the Second Order. I just, I, I love this. Grab your wands, Doc Wizards. Let's fight. It's, we must take our order back. I just, I love, I love how seriously these lunatics are taking this nonsense. These grown men <laughs> are getting, you know, they're preparing over in Paris to go back to London and take over their dark magic order to fucking reclaim it from the, from the false wizards. <laughs> their plan was to return and summon all second order members and over the course of several days have them answer a series of questions in the course of an interview as to which darkly... <laughs> Dark leader they would pledge their loyalty to. Yates and his wizards or Mathers? Crowley, as the questioner, would wear a mask of Osiris. Oh, Jesus. To emphasize the impersonality of his role. This is very, like, eyes wide shut now. As Mathers' emissary and judge, the loyalty test would culminate in the signing of a statement avowing Mathers as the unquestioned leader. Any member refusing to sign would be expelled from the order. These plans formulated, Crowley departed from Paris on April 13th, and the wizard inquisition raged. It raged for three days and nights. <laughs> While Crowley quizzed the magicians in London, uh, Mayers, I think I keep saying Mathers. I just, my mind puts that T in there. Mayers aided from afar with his sorcery. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. He, <laughs> he baptized dry peas, giving each of them uh, the name of one of his opponents. And then he invoked the devil's Beelzebub and Typhon Set while simultaneously shaking the peas in a large sieve to create quarrels and discord among his enemies. Do you hear what I'm saying? This dude, <laughs> this dude is in like some Paris apartment, and he's wearing like a robe, and he's been doing incantations, and he just he has a sieve of, of peas that he's shaking around, and he's angry, and he's, he's just imagining all these arguments breaking out because of the fucking peas. Running. This is bananas. Just shaking dry peas, calling out for some demon to torment other grown-ups who won't play magic the way he wants to. <laughs> I'll show them. They'll rue the day they cross Samuel Little Mathers. Mayers, wait until I get these peas rolled out just right. They have yet to feel my pea wrath. 
well, this little uh, battle fails to accomplish uh, much of anything. Of, of course, it doesn't. It, other than just kind of fracturing their, their little order, and most members just kind of just give up on it in the next year or so. They're just like, fucking, no, no, this is too much. This is too much weird bullshit. And they go back to their lives, and they move on to, or they move on to other silly little black magic clubs. Uh, and, and Crowley himself moves on. On July 6, 1900, he, he takes off for the States. He's still associated with Mayor's uh, Mathers. God dang it. Um, sorry, I had it written down wrong that one time. I believe I believe it is Mathers now. Um, on July 6, he's not a, a seriously important person to this story. Uh, I hope this doesn't ruin it for anybody. Is it Mayors or Mathers? It, it is Mathers. It is Mathers. I had it written down wrong one time. Sorry, I get so hung up on stuff like that. Anyway... July 6th, Crowley lands in New York Harbor, wanders through the U.S. and Mexico, practicing magic, working on his spells. He attempts to start some new magical orders. According to one source, his growing sense of independence showed itself also in the founding of a new magical society. Uh, According to Crowley, uh, Mathers had bestowed upon him a certain amount of latitude to initiate into the Golden Dawn suitable new candidates whom he might encounter on his travels. And again, the, the way, the, how seriously they take this. Now, yes, you can, yes, you, yes, you can, you know, within, uh, within reason, you can bring new members into the fold. You know, I trust you. Uh, of course, you know, after the first few members of Broughton, I will have to meet them myself and make sure that you've properly screened them. We can't just let anyone in our, in our little magic club, even though there's just you and I at the moment. Uh... Uh, so this latitude is expanded by Crowley into the creation of the Lamp of the Invisible Light, which appears to have had at most two members. So this is one of his accomplishments early on as he gets a, a group. He comes up with a whole name and a mon- you know, and a fucking code, and it's just him and some other dude. <laughs> it's just two of them. It's just Crowley's one member, and some other dude is another one. Some, some Don uh, Jesus Medina in Mexico, who, who Crowley grandly describes as, uh, as a descendant of the great Duke of Armada fame and one of the highest chiefs of Scottish free right or Scottish right Freemasonry, uh, he initiates this elder into the into the <laughs> the lamp of the invisible light, his club of two, and and then in turn he receives uh, an accelerated Masonic initiation to the thirty third degree, the highest degree of the Scottish right. Sure, he did. He's just fucking making a, he's just a fucking lunatic. He's just wandering around forming weird little clubs. So many rituals in this episode. So many funny hats and robes to wear. And again, so trust fund. Uh, throughout 1901, 1902, Crowley divides his time between occult practice, writing weird poems, talking about spells and shit, and mountain climbing. And, uh, and all these poems he's going to do, by the way, for the most, he doesn't, he loses, he doesn't really make any money on this or loses money. It's all like, you know, like self-published stuff under pseudonyms. So he's not like, it's not like he's really making a living as a poet. He's able to kind of stretch. I, I assume he got just based on his uh, life. It doesn't go into all his financial details, but in addition to that initial, uh, kind of lump sum he was given, you know, that was equivalent to like half a million pounds. I think he was, you know, also given more money as time went on. Or he just, you know, kind of lived off the kindness of, of his admirers, which he would do for sure later. Um, so Crowley, in, in, in August of 1903, he's invited to stay with his friend Gerald Kelly and his family. He, he makes it back to England and, uh, and their vacation in, in Scotland. And Crowley is reintroduced to Bennett's young sister, Rose Edith, and is immediately attracted to her. On August 11th, Rose shares that she is in trouble for having an affair with a married man. Her family is pressuring her to marry another, you know, this uh, man who she does not care for. And so Crowley offers to kind of, you know, solve this dilemma for her and marry her and let her move in with him and also allow her to continue her affair with this married man. So, you know, kind of conventions be damned without telling her family on August 12th. They just, the next day, they elope in the, in the nearby Scottish town of Dingwall. And uh, her family's understandably not pleased. Her father requests Crowley pay a 10,000 pound dowry and he refuses. He's not going to fucking give away that not hard earned trust fund money. Uh, 
Um, dude clearly loved to defy conventions, which is why a lot of, you know, metal, you know, pioneers and stuff would love him later. You know, it's like he just <laughs> did shit because he weren't supposed to, it felt like so often. Like you wonder if he slept with that male poet in college or married this woman here because he was actually attracted to them or if he was attracted to the taboo they represented. Like he was attracted to the violation of the existing social moral code, you know, that they re- represented. Like super taboo to have a homosexual relationship in Victorian England. Also super taboo to marry a woman days after meeting her with without her family's permission in part so that she could continue to fuck some other married guy. I mean, he clearly loved creating some chaos. Uh, and then comes the honeymoon and Crowley's big spiritual epiphany. But first, a word from today's sponsor. Time Suck is brought to us today by Covent Garden's Magic Cauldron. Now, the Magic Cauldron in delightful Covent Gardens uh, in London is a fantastic little magic shop for the whole family. Uh, they have hand buzzers. They have smoke bombs for the little ones. Magical locking rings, those fun little rings you kind of, you know, oh, you know, they're locked. Now they're not locked. Uh, for the middle school magician in your family, uh, and for older, more advanced students, the Magic Cauldron has a uh, demonic possession incantations. They have necromancer rituals from the Book of the Dead, uh, astral projection jackets, uh, so you don't freeze out in you know the the fucking parallel dimensions. Uh, lots of silk scarves to continually be pulled from you know top hats, which they also sell. To get fifty percent off your next order, go to www.getthefuckoutofhere.magic.didanyonefallforthat.sonofabitch. No, there's no sponsors today. I just wanted to do that. Uh, short, shortly after their shotgun wedding. Oh, man. I hope, I, hope, I hope some of you made it to Necromancer Ritual before you're like, what the fuck? Uh, shortly after their shotgun wedding, Alistair and Rose leave to have a honeymoon in Cairo. That must be nice, man. Getting a honeymoon in Egypt. Alistair would later call the honeymoon a period of uninterrupted debauchery. Now, that is a good honeymoon. That's how you do a honeymoon right. Uninterrupted debauchery. Poor Rose, though, and I can only imagine where and how often she was she was penetrated by the great beast Lovehammer. He, well, he, you know, he's probably, you know, as we were talking earlier, he's probably put in her armpit and back of her knee. And uh, he must have snuck it into her vagina at least one time, you know, because she does get pregnant. And 16 months later, she gives birth to Lucifina. Yes, a fully grown temptress after a long gestation period with fishnet stockings. Right out the womb, fishnet stockings. A gata, full perky breast that would vary between a B and D cup depending on mood and the moon cycle. Unimaginable beauty. The demon immediately kills her mother and takes her place as Alistair's wife. It's so fucked up. No, that never happened. Not even in pretend land that happened. Right? I've grown very fond of Lucifina, despite her occasional meddling and suck. Anything that goes wrong, still her fault. But I don't want her mythology to include messing around with nasty-ass Crowley. Uh-uh. He skeeves me out. No, thank you. Uh, Rose does get pregnant, perhaps uh, impregnated inside an actual pyramid. Uh, they spent a the night in the Vikings' chamber in the Great Pyramid. Jesus, man. Guessing the visitation policy was way more relaxed back then. Uh, how cool would that be to stay a night, by the way, in a pyramid? Alistair said he arranged a stay so he could work on his magic inside the powerful resonator that is the Great Pyramid. Hail Nimrod! And he wanted his wife to see what a great magician he was. Oh, God. Uh, This was a turning point for Crowley. Rose, in a dream state within the chamber, kept repeating, They are waiting for you. When asked who uh, she said was waiting, uh, she said Horus, an Egyptian god. Now, apparently she supposedly knew nothing of the occult, nothing of Egyptology. After this wild night, Crowley took her to an Egyptian museum to test her knowledge of Egyptology. And she ran through the museum until she found the statue of, Hor- of, uh, um, of this uh, uh, Horus and then you know, cried, this is him. Now, adding a dark twist to the encounter, the statue of Horus was exhibit 666. Dun, dun, dun. Now, I think it's important to keep in mind that Crowley was doing a shitload of drugs around this time, and in all likelihood, so was Rose. So so God knows how much uh, cocaine or opium also made it into that chamber, you know, how much uh, fucking formaldehyde they were huffing. 
Uh, on April 8, 1904, in a hotel in Cairo, the Great Beast had another encounter with the supernatural. Or so he would later claim. Crowley hears a voice over his shoulder. It's not a human voice. Over the next three days, this voice will appear at noon each day and dictate to Crowley. And that voice was Iwas, emissary of Horus. And each day he would whisper into Crowley's ear, Clean your taint. It is filthy. You mostly remember to wash your balls and frequently and vigorously wash your butthole. If anything, you're washing your butthole too often and too vigorously. But you often forget your taint, and it is filthy. And from that experience uh, forward, Crowley would have the cleanest taint in human history. It would become a great honor, uh, actually, to have Crowley uh, press his squeaky clean taint, literally squeaky clean, against your face. Uh, That's how he knew he cared for you. Um, Sometimes he would also let you eat off his unearthly divine cleanliness uh, of a taint. No, no. That was nonsense, but but it wasn't nonsense that he thought he heard this demon thing whispering to him uh, every day, and, and, and apparently it was you know Iwas, uh, which is kind of and Iris was giving him messages from Horus, which is kind of weird, right? That like one demon thing or Egypt god has to has to give you messages from another one, you know? Like why can't what's he doing? What's he what's he what's he so busy doing that he can't come talk to Alistair? You know, is this Horus? Uh, no, Horus is unable to make it at all this time. He's haunting a different pyramid today, or maybe at the Sphinx. It is I, the less impressive but still pretty cool Iwas. And I'm here to give you a message uh, from Horus. He told me to talk to you. Uh, supposedly, this Iwas uh, gave Crowley the text of the Book of the Law, named him Prophet. Mm-hmm, sure he did. Sure he did, David Koresh. I mean, Marshall Applewhite. I mean, Jim Jones. I mean, Elron Hubbard. I mean, Alistair Crowley, you delusional son of a bitch. This text would become the foundation for Thelema, Alistair's new spiritual philosophy or religion. Uh, the most important line of the text Crowley received and the mantra that would be the basis for all that Crowley would later do is, Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Now, to the events in Cairo, Crowley dubs himself uh, Chihuahan, Hebrew for great beast. And Rose is now Audra the Seer. Rose is a scarlet woman. The first Scarlet Woman. So he's getting way into his new mythology. On July 28th, 1904, Rose gives birth to their daughter. And uh, and Crowley goes out of his fucking way to give her the most preposterously shitty name any parent has given a child. He names her, I'm not making this up, Nuit Ma Ahathur Hictate Sappho Jezebel Lilith. That's her name. That's her first name. That's her first name. Right? That's That's not even counting the Crowley part. Seriously, guessing they just called her Lily for short. I hope so. Jesus. Anyone who names their kids some fucking bullshit like that, uh, they, they deserve honestly to have their kid taken away from them. You're not even joking. You're, you are not ready to be a parent when you do that. And you make another human being carry the burden of your wackadoodle agenda uh, <laughs> with their name. Ugh. Crowley later explained her name. He, he would say, knew it was given in honor to Our Lady of the Stars, Ma, Goddess of Justice, because the sign of Libra was rising. Ahathor, goddess of love and beauty, became Venus, rules Libra. Oh, because Venus rules Libra. I'm not sure about the name Hecate. <laughs> I love one of them. It's just random. It's, it's Hecate or Hec- Hecate. It's H-E-C-A-T. Fuck, it's nonsense is what it is. But I love how he says, I'm not sure about the name Hecate. It may have been a compliment to the uh, infernal gods. A poet could hardly do less than commemorate the only lady who ever wrote poetry, Sappho. Uh, Jezebel still held her place as my favorite character in scripture, and Lilith, of course, holds undisputed possession of my affections in the realm of demons. That is the most wackadoodle rationale for a name. I love that in the middle of all this symbolism, there's one of the names you just like, yeah, don't, uh, hmm, that's a good question. Right? We Look, we were doing a lot of opium. I was very high 
and I don't remember all the reasoning. Uh, around the birth of the child, Alistair's marriage begins to fall apart. Maybe they argued a bunch over that kid's name. I, I wanted to name her Sarah. What's wrong with Sarah? It's a beautiful name. What's wrong with Nuitmar Asul Heket Safo Jezebel Lilith? Fucking everything. Fuckface would have been a better name than that. Uh, domestic life did not suit Crowley. So in April 1905, Crowley takes off for some more mountain climbing. You know, he'd been doing off and on ever since he got that, you know, trust fund. He decided to join an exp- expedition with the members of the, the K2 t- team to climb uh, Kachanjunga, a towering peak of some 28,207 feet, third highest mountain in the world. Uh, no Western climbers had ever ventured. For like for like 40 years, he would have, you know, the the, the, the record be part of the team that had the record for the highest climb. So, you know, he was, you know, at least within with good company doing his climbing. Uh, th- this climb, though, doesn't doesn't go well. Uh, he, he gets in a fight with his team, has to make himself a separate little camp. I'm guessing the argument started when he told him what his daughter's name was, and they called him an asshole, and it probably went downhill from there. No, but then on September 1st, 1905, uh, an avalanche occurs, and Crowley's handling of, of the aftermath causes him to kind of basically lose a lot of respect in the mountaineering circles and kind of be shunned. Uh, back to the shunning. Uh, the rest of his party was descending when an avalanche struck. Four of the group died. The survivors would later claim that Crowley was nearby in an unaffected tent when the avalanche hit and that he ignored their cries for help, choosing instead to drink his tea. I don't know. Maybe maybe cast a spell to make it happen. Maybe he's probably dicking around with some dried peas in his tent, you know, rolling them, rolling them around in a bowl of spider legs and some eye of newt, some bat wool in his tent cauldron. I'll, te- I'll teach you to, to, make, to not be nice to me, the dark wizard. Uh, October 29th, 1905, after the disastrous climb, Crowley heads to Calcutta. Rose is uh, to meet him there. Uh, they had not seen each other in six months, and you know she just wanted to catch up with him and just present him in person. Is 1905 International Father of the Year trophy. Uh, the young family leaves from India to travel to China, and Crowley again quickly tires of domestic life. Less than six months later, on March 22nd, 1906, Rose and Crowley part company. Crowley head ba- heads back to England uh, by the Pacific route to Japan, then to Canada, and then after crossing of the entire North American continent, at last a sail for England from New York. Rose was to proceed by way of India to pick up the remaining luggage, and then through the Suez Canal and the Mediterranean. The rationale later offered by Crowley for this decision and this is all according to later biography author uh, Lawrence Sutton, was his intention to drum up support in New York for a Katanchunga expedition, which he would attempt vainly to accomplish. It's like a new new expedition. Well, he arrives in, L- 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 he arrives in Liverpool on June 2nd, 1906, and learns via letter that his daughter knew it has died of typhoid in Rangoon. And he blames Rose, claiming that the cause was an improperly sanitized bottle nipple uh, due to Rose's drunkenness. Uh, I wonder if she just finally realized what her name was and just passed away of sadness. Uh, Rose is pregnant again when young Nuit dies, gives birth to daughter Lola Zaza in 1907. Lola would live a long life, reaching the age of 83 uh, with a regular, not too fucked up name, coincidence. Uh, by 1907, there's no longer even an illusion of a monogamous marriage between Alistair and Rose, and Rose is drinking heavily, and Crowley is unsympathetic. Uh, by 1911, she would actually end up being committed to an asylum for alcohol-induced dementia, and uh, and after many years of dementia and just kind of uh, toiling uh, in, in asylums, she would die in 1932. By 1908, Alistair has moved out of their shared Scotland apartment, and their marriage completely has fallen apart. Uh, he's also begun to spread the gospel of Thelema, which is very similar to the Golden Dawn with some kind of new stuff, you know, some new twists and turns thrown in. Uh, it's built off the back of the Golden Dawn kind of rights. In November of 1907, he'd founded the A, followed by three periods in a triangle, the logical and mathematical symbol for therefore – uh, another A followed again by this symbol, you know, like A, therefore, A, therefore, uh, you know, and, and 
And uh, yeah, so this AA, and since most people, myself included, don't immediately recognize what a therefore symbol means, and 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 I just and just read it as AA, which I guess you know is how you say it. It, it. it comes across looking just like Alcoholics Anonymous, and I just bring that up because it's led to some hilarious conspiracy theory videos on YouTube, where thousands of people uh, believe, and you can tell by their comments that Alcohol Anonymous or Alcoholics Anonymous was founded by Aleister Crowley and is inherently a satanic organization, which is complete and utter nonsense. But but there's this uh, you know association because. Of Aleister Crowley having an, an organization, you know, around the same time AA was founded, roughly, that had these same initials. Uh, what do the A stand for with Crowley's organization? Well, there's a lot of disagreement over that, uh, since from what I can tell, Aleister never completely spelled it out just explicitly. Uh, the Latin name of Crowley's previous magical order, the Golden Dawn, uh, Aurora Aurea, also featured the initials AA. Probably not a coincidence. Uh, Argentin Argen Argentium Astrum. Uh, I'm not good with Latin, but that's Latin for the silver star, and and most past believers have felt, uh, and I guess most current believers felt, this is the true name of the religion, like the silver star gets called a lot of times. And there's a bunch of other conjecture out there about other possibilities. Well, whatever the fuck it stands for, Crowley begins to spread it. He starts to gather disciples. He meets Victor Newberg in spring of 1908. Newberg is seven years uh, Crowley's junior. Crowley's later description of him is fantastic. Uh, he described this guy as, he was agnostic, vegetarian, a mystic, a Tolstoyan, and several other things all at once. He endeavored to express his spiritual state by wearing the green star of Esperanto. Uh, though he could not speak the language by refusing to wear a hat, even in London, to wash and to wear trousers. Whenever addressed, he wriggled convulsively in his lips, which were three times too large for him, and had been put on hastily as an afterthought, emitted the most extraordinary laugh that had ever come my way. To these advantages, he united those of being extraordinarily well-read, overflowing with exquisitely subtle humor, and being one of the best-natured people that ever trod this planet. I love that his physical uh, description makes me think of like a young Mick Jagger. Well, Crowley initiated this Newberg into his magical order, the AA, and he took the magical name Freta Omnia Vincum. And I'm sure he took that very seriously. From, from this moment forward, you are Freta Omnia Vincum. That is your magic name. Uh, Crowley also began a, a long-lasting sentimental and sexual relationship with Newberg in 1909. <laughs> Crowley took Newberg to Algiers in Africa, and they set off in the desert where they performed some super weird shit. They performed a series of occult rituals based on this uh, Enochian system of the 16th century British occultist uh, Dr. John Dee. You know, these, these rituals to, like, uh, bring forth spirits into this plane. In the midst of these rituals, Crowley put the ideas of sex and magic together, performed his first sex magic, and it'd be like magic with, like, a K on there, uh, ritual, which would actually bring forth the red hot chili peppers from one plane, a plane of white boy Southern California funk, into this one, into ours. Blood, sugar, sex, magic. Actually worth noting that the Chili Peppers uh, did spell magic with a K in that album and that song, just like Crowley did. N another pop culture nod to the hedonist. So no, of course, they did not conjure a band. They did try to fuck up some magic, literally. Uh, Crowley would come to believe, as he literally came in the desert with, with Newberg, uh, there, were, there, there was sodomy going on out in the desert, and I hope they used lube. Anal sex in the desert sounds like a nightmare. A lot of sand. Uh, as he would later state in the Book of Law, he would state that each individual has an absolute right to satisfy his sexual instinct as is physiologically proper for him. The one injunction is to treat all such acts as sacraments. One should not eat as the brutes, but in order to enable one to do one's will. The same applies to sex. We must use every faculty to further the one object of our existence. Well, so what he did out there is, uh, <laughs> well, he would come 
and then come to believe that sexual energy is a potent force that can be harnessed to transcend one's normally perceived reality. Uh, one example of the practice of sex magic is using the sexual energy of orgasm to, with visual, visualization to, to achieve a desired result. And so, but he has this like epiphany, like while he's he's having <laughs> Newberg sodomize him in the desert while they're doing their little inc- incantations and stuff. Like it was like part of this ritual, this deviation of this ritual. You know uh, that he had come up with, which really all just sounds like rationale for just uh, doing kind of unlimited fucking. You know, he 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 would go on to make like sex magic rituals that involved oral intercourse, vaginal intercourse, anal intercourse, just everything. Just you know, just using some good old mumbo jumbo magic talk to justify a lot of lot of putting your dick in places. Or maybe he really did think it gave him power. In Algiers, he knew. <laughs> He and Newberg, this is it's so. This whole episode is so preposterous. He and Newberg did try to fuck the demon uh, Charonzon, the dweller of the abyss, into existence, or Koranzon, or who gives a shit. But no, he this demon. He believed this demon to be the main obstacle between humanity and true enlightenment. These these knuckleheads are they're <laughs> they're out there in the desert having sex in order to in their minds open the gates of hell. And again, how much opium went into that? And yeah, and, and to do this for this particular ritual, Crowley has Newberg sodomize him. Uh huh. And at the point of climax, Crowley has this mystic revelation that where he sees a bright white light and realizes that sex itself is a sacrament; it's a shortcut to magic. And uh, this ritual ignited, you know, Crowley and 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 firmly believing that sex and magic were linked. And then you'll see where this leads. So, 1912, Crowley finds a new muse for his sex magic. Uh, he was never one to have a partner very long or necessarily to stick to one's sex. Uh, Leela Waddell, one of his books, The, the Book of Lies, is, is very much inspired by her. Not, not sure how flattering that title is. I don't know. B- baby, I have dedicated a new book to you. That's wonderful, darling. And what is it called, Alistair? The Book of Lies, you harlot. Uh, <laughs> Crowley spends the next few years working on sex magic, developing Thelema further. I bet he does. Sounds like a good time. Estelima research sounds a hell of a lot more exciting than Times research, I'll tell you that. In, in January of 1914, Crowley decides to undertake another major ritual. It would be a six-week ritual. It's a long time for a ritual. It would be called the Paris Working Ritual. Paris sounds like a way better place to do some sex magic than the African desert. And the purpose of the Paris Working Ritual was to summon the Roman gods Mercury and Jupiter into our plane. Uh-huh. That sounds legit. Not at all wackadoodle. You know, just kind of reach out to a few Roman gods. No big whoop, you know. Uh, man, and I thought last, uh, last sucks, Norse mythology was weird. And the ritual takes place in this Paris apartment Crowley and Newberg share, and it attracted some, uh, some, some interesting guests. New York Times foreign correspondent Walter Durante, another of Alistair's lovers, he, he participated. And the first experiment is done on New Year's Eve with Durante, and Crowley receives sacrament from Durante in the form of his semen. Yep, you heard right. Uh, exactly how and where he received this sacrament it has not been recorded. Ho- hopefully not in his eye. That's, that's rude. And then, and then that night, <laughs> shit gets so cray cray. Newberg does some type of dance. His movements represented a pentagram done to purify the room. Uh, while he dances, and I assume he's dancing naked, Crowley scourges him on his buttocks. So you know he's getting spanked with some little spanking device, probably some little leather strap or something. As he does his little pentagram dance, and then Crowley takes a dagger, cuts a cross on Newberg's chest, and he wraps a chain around Newberg's head. So much drugs. So much drugs had to have been present. No way these idiots were so sober for this insanity. And then when the and then when the clock strikes midnight, of course, Crowley and Newberg engage in ritual sex. And then Newberg is fucking Crowley uh, while they're both reciting a Latin verse composed by Durante and Crowley just for this occasion, which translates to "Magician is with magician joined. Hermes, king of want, appear, bringing the ineffable word." 
Do you understand the fucking how crazy this is? They're chanting that phrase over and over <laughs> in Latin while engaged while having the sodomy. I'm sure there's witnesses chanting it as well. And then according to this, the outrageous wackadoodles present at the event, Mercury manifested in Newburgh, whom Crowley saw surrounded by a dazzling astral array. The temple grew flashing, full of flashing caduce, the magical wand with intertwined serpents, sacred to Mercury of gold and yellow. Oh, good drugs, man. The serpents alive and moving, Hermes bearing them, but so young and mischievous was he that the sacrifice was impossible. Well, apparently this last sentence referred to Newburgh fucking up bringing Mercury fully into our realm by not maintaining an erection long enough to complete the ritual. I'm, I'm not kidding. That's not one of my lies. I'm, they're, they're that ridiculous. You know, like they do all this stuff. They prepare for it. You know, this very long ritual, just weeks ending with this. And then, you know, Mercury doesn't show up. And they're like, well, of course, if he didn't show up, you, you came too fast. God damn it, man. Why couldn't you have just pinched your nuts a little bit towards the end? Slapped your dick for the, slapped the tip of your dick for a second to slow things down. You just you just nutted away our entire ritual. Well, and, and they, this is how seriously they took this. Crowley was so so disappointed in Newberg, uh, his ill-timed orgasm, that they actually parted ways after this ritual. It ended their relationship. Uh, for Crowley, the object of this ritual was not limited to just some mystical union with some goddess or god. He he thought they could actually invoke some sort of magical child, as he would later you know come to call it. This magical child could be like, you know, some concentrated form of inspiration. It could manifest physically as a talisman uh-huh. uh, or even as a human being or as in a newborn baby. That'd be a, that'd be a quite the party party trick to buttfuck a newborn baby into existence. <laughs> you can do that. Ooh, that is you got some powers, my friend. Oh, man, I don't want to I don't want to be around that baby. Well, with that, I don't know what that butt baby is going to get up to in his life, but probably nothing good. Hey, look at here now. I got some peak. This is peak. Ever did lick? Maybe that's how Piney started from a from a, a demonic butt baby ritual. But <laughs> it doesn't happen. This doesn't happen, you know, because of Newberg's too easily excited ween. He gets a little bit of spanking, a little bit of chanting, a little bit of sodomy, and he's spraying like a garden sprinkler, man. Amateur. What an amateur move. So then he takes off, and he and he has a fairly not, normal life after that, away from Crowley. Crowley. Uh, on October twenty fourth, nineteen fourteen, Crowley heads back to America on the uh, uh, Lus- Lusitania. Uh, the U.S. passenger vessel, the sinking of which in 1916 by a German submarine would precipitate America's entry into the war. Uh, he's still exploring sex magic. He records this time in his diary. You know, he notes that from September 1st, 1914 to June 16th, 1915, there were 68 operations, which was his term for sex magic experiences, and that 11 of these were solo masturbations. So, you know, 11 times he wasn't able to trick someone into one of his weird sex games, and he would just jerk off instead. Man, masturbation magic. That's pretty sweet. That sounds like an easy trick to pull off. I mean, maybe I'm going to do that. Yeah, I mean, I'll do that later today. You know, out on the road in my hotel room. How would how would my how would the other hotel guests like that? Just to hear me, you know, jerking off, just just yelling stuff like Allah, peanut butter sandwich. And maybe right as I come, just I'll just by the power of Grayskull. <laughs> what are you doing in there? Sex, sex magic. Get out of. Get away from. Get away from me. Uh, in January of 1915, Crowley meets uh, George Sylvester Virick, uh, a writer that Crowley would inter- interact with throughout the war years. Uh, Virick would later be remembered as the most influential propagandist for the German cause in America during both World War One and World War Two. So you know, birds of a feather flock together. He was attracting a real swell crowd. By the way, th- there will be a lot of like speculation about this later. Some people would think that he was just being a dick, trying to support Germany, just because it was again like he just likes stirring up the pot. Other, there was other speculation, never completely verified, that he may have been some secret agent for Britain and actually trying to spread propaganda to, to make the propaganda seem so dumb that it kind of weakened the German cause. So maybe 
uh, he was working with the British, British government, maybe just being a dick. Uh, the public assumed he was just being a dick uh, when this would you know, come out in the press. In June, Crowley falls in love with a New York fashion model named Jean uh, Jeannie uh, or Jeanne. Uh, it doesn't say however however she chose to pronounce it. I'm gonna say uh, let's just let's just say Jeannie uh, Jeannie Robert Foster. Foster was the model used for the illustrations of artist Harrison Fisher. She was named the Harrison Fisher Girl in 1903. Uh, all these illustrations, you know, uh, would go out about her. Jeannie would be one of the great loves of Crowley's life and another Scarlet Woman. Crowley begins practicing some samasat sama. Jesus Christ, samasati uh, meditation around this time and has a revelation that to become a magus. And bring the world of the word of the Lima into the flesh. He must have a magic child. He just keeps getting weirder. He just he chooses Foster to be his new scarlet woman to bear this child. The undertaking would be magic of the highest order, the mystical union of the sexes. Crowley composed. Luckily for uh, Jeannie, doesn't happen, and she goes on to become a poet of some renown and uh, get away from him. In 1916, Crowley starts an affair with an Indian musician, Ratan Devi, who she becomes pregnant within a month of meeting him. Now he can have his magic baby. Uh, well, nope. Uh, her husband finds out, and she and he's not happy. And then uh, takes her takes her away from him, takes her to, to sail back to, across the pond to England. However, Crowley performs a sex magic ritual to ensure a safe pregnancy because that's what that's what you got to do. You know, we got to have some more sex to make sure that you make it. And um, and then uh, she gets uh, sick on the voyage and has a miscarriage, and uh, and yeah. And so no more, no, no magic baby doesn't get to have his magic baby during the summer of 1916. Crowley uh, ups the amounts of drug usage he's doing, uh, tied to his magic rituals. Finally, starts thinking straight. Man, that's what he's been missing. I mean, that's why he wasn't able to get mercury. That's the real reason. It wasn't about his buddy's ween. They just didn't have enough coke in their system. Didn't have enough opium. Uh, he starts using heroin for solitary sex operations, which is one hell of a way to rationalize shooting up heroin while you're jerking off. Uh, he's doing a lot of coke too. Uh, Got to get more coke into those rituals. His, his drug of choice was relatively recent discovery, ether or ethyl oxide, pungent anesthetic liquid, the vapors from which he would inhale from a bottle with a long, thin neck. Sounds fancy. Huffing up that ethyl oxide, man. Huffing up a little ether. That's what the magic was missing, man. You got to put a little bit of that pep on it. A little bit of that ether pep. Guy was a fucking maniac. Uh, New York of 1918, Crowley meets Leah Hersig. Her sister Alma brought her to Crowley's apartment. Alma was already an occultist. Leah had an interest. Leah was a 35-year-old single mother to a son named Hansi, who Crowley would call Dionysius. That's, that's not weird, referring to a young boy as the Greek god of wine and madness. That's, no, man, that's not weird at all. Uh, when they met, she was a public school teacher in the Bronx, uh, attending law lectures at NYU. And then she met Crowley, and everything fell apart. Uh, at the time, Crowley met Hersig. Uh, he was attempting to create visual art in his apartment, he just taken out an ad in a New York newspaper that read, <laughs> that read all, all caps to begin, wanted, dwarfs. And then he goes to regular lowercase, hunchbacks, tattooed women, Harrison Fisher girls, freaks of all sorts, colored women, only if exceptionally ugly or deformed, to pose for artists. I swear to God, this, this guy really just marched to the beat of his own drummer, didn't he? Uh, I feel like he would have loved the skin art of Ed Gein. Oh, man, he would have loved it. I don't know how much Ed Gein would have loved uh, him. I think he would have loved it again. Uh, Hersig fit none of these descriptions. Uh, she was white and attractive, but she showed up, and she would become the first woman to pose for him completely nude. And then after he finishes uh, his piece, his art, he consecrated her as the Scarlet Woman. Uh, World War One's going on during all of this. Crowley, uh, and again, you know, uh, there's those rumors that he apparently offered himself to British intelligence as a spy. Uh, kind of the main one is that he was rejected when he offered himself and he takes that personally, and then that's when he becomes a dick and like supports the propaganda on behalf of the Germans. And then there's the other side, which I mentioned earlier. December of 1918, Crowley returns to London, leaving behind a pregnant Hersig. A physician prescribes him heroin for his asthma. Uh-huh. 
It's probably going to just, you know, again, we talked about that. What a great treatment. He moves from uh, 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 there to Paris. An eight-month pregnant Hersig uh, joins him. Two-year-old Hansi uh, joins him. Uh, on the boat to Paris, they, they meet Ninette Shumway, a single mother of a three-year-old boy. And uh, she comes along to become a nanny for Hersig and Crowley. By February of 1919, Shunway is also a magic lover and is given the name of Sister Cypress. And Hersig remains the primary Scarlet Woman, and she's, I guess, like the backup Scarlet Woman. Uh, on February 20th, 1919, they got a little trifecta going on. Hersig gives birth to a daughter named Anne Leon, nicknamed a Poupe, uh, which is French for doll. Uh, Pupe. And in March of 1919, Crowley uh, seeks a place to build a church for Thelema, a temple. He consults an oracle. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course he does. Uh, that gives a favorable response to the small Sicilian town of Cephalu. Uh, Cephalu. Uh, Crowley arrives on April 1st with Herzig and Shumway, and they rent the, the, the villa Santa Barbara and work to remodel it into the Abbey of Thelema. February 1920, both Herzig and Shumway are pregnant. Uh, Pupe is in very poor health. On October 14th, Pupe dies. In a hospital in Palermo, it is said Crowley grieved more for Poopy than anyone else in his life. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I feel like such a monster. I, it's very sad what I'm reading about, obviously, like this poor baby. Die. But when you say like Poopy dies, and it just it makes it hard to be as sad. Maybe that's the, maybe that's the trick to dealing with grief. Just name everybody you love fucking horrific, weird, silly names. You know, just Poopy and Peepy Head. You know, and that way, and only refer to them as that. So that, you know, it's, oh, I've been terrible. Peepy head is not feeling well, and, and Poopy is very sick. It takes a little bit of this edge off of it. Anyway, uh, Hersick has a miscarriage six days uh, later after Poopy dies. So very, very terrible, terrible for her. The loss of these two children in the face of Shumway's healthy pregnancy proves unbearable for Hersick. She becomes convinced that Shumway has been working some black magical current and it's been causing the deaths of the two children. And she talks Crowley into reviewing Shumway's magical diaries for this period, which he does, and he feels that she was right, and then he's, she's shunned. She's, t- she's banished from the Abbey. These fucking lunatics. How seriously they take that stuff. You know, it's so sad that these kids die, but it's like, yeah, what, was it the spells? Was she doing black magic? Or was it the crazy amount of drugs you idiots are doing out on Sicily? Well, she doesn't, she's not banished for long. Weeks later, on November 26, uh, she gives uh, this, this, the second Scarlet, Scarlet Woman gives birth to a daughter and is allowed to return, which is, which is too bad because this little temple that they're living in is not fit for a baby, as we're going to find out. So much debauchery may have went on there. So much sexual depravity, like an insane level. And we're going to dive right into that right after we take a short break for today's Idiots of the Internet. All right, remember the earlier confusion I referenced between uh, Alistair's AA religion and Alcoholics Anonymous? Well, let's start uh, with the comments underneath uh, the the video I watched about that. It says, what you need to know about Alcoholics Anonymous and its true history, hashtag Killuminati, Killuminati, there we go, Killuminati. (laughs) <laughs> and the creator uh, and narrator of this video is a li- living, just breathing, just shit sandwich of a human being, just a maniac. At one point when he's making this convoluted argument about uh, how how Alcoholics Anonymous is satanic and trying to tie Crowley to it, which is which is crazy when you consider how much Crowley loved drugs. At one point he puts a picture on screen of Alistair and it's been badly photoshopped to kind of show him giving the, the viewer the double bird, both middle fingers up. You know, I'm sure he, you know, he phrases it as like, that's against God. He's Anyway, <laughs> there's some stuff that really cracked me up under this video. Uh, user His Helping Heart posts, all caps, Wow, I am shocked at this. I feel sick to my stomach, exclamation points. 
lowercase. To be honest, I was actually going to go to an AA meeting this morning, but for some reason I changed my mind and I just stayed home and I read my Bible. And then after I finished, I decided to get online and see what God wanted to show me today. And I see this, all caps, exclamation points. What? Exclamation points. Wow. Thanks for the information. I appreciate all that you post. God bless you, brother, exclamation points. Wow. Helping heart, you you need to spend a few days reading some books other than the Bible because you are dumb as fuck. Oh, my God. By all means, keep reading the Bible. Keep reading it, maybe. But just, you know, work work some other texts into the rotation, like a, like maybe a critical thinking textbook, you know, critical thinking 101. Maybe, maybe read an Aleister Crowley bio followed by an AA summary so you can understand for the first time how clearly opposed those uh, philosophies actually are. That, that is just so, so sad that this person clearly has a drinking problem. They need help. And instead of getting help, uh, you know, they make up some weird excuse that's, you know, to rationalize it through their faith to, to stay home and then read this video. And then now we're never going to go to a meeting that could actually save their life. <laughs> could actually, I know AA is not for everybody. I actually had to go to AA uh, for just for like court ordered when I had this DUI uh, years ago. Not my finest moment at all. And you know, it was really cool. You could see it really like fucking meant a lot to some of these people. And I've known people who AA has been a huge, huge, important piece of their life and has kept them on the the road to sobriety. And now this this poor this poor lady this this helping heart is just never going to go because this dumb shit has convinced her it's satanic. User Daniel Fristo uh, comments under this post still drinking, and, and I'm, gu- <laughs> I'm guessing she's referring to user helping hearts. Yeah, uh, I'm sure I'm sure still drinking. Oh man, read more, drink less. You know what? You need to exercise the, the few brain cells you have left. One more from this comment section. Uh, user uh, Jamie A asks. Please do more videos on this subject. <laughs> My husband had a drinking problem and now it goes to AA. We are separated and he keeps hooking up with women there. He is into new age now and yoga and joins Spartans Fitness Challenge, which is all about the flesh, not the spirit. Uh, I believe in health and exercise, but this is also extreme. He rarely will listen about Jesus anymore and is sinning, but thinks he's okay. He said AA has to come first before me and our kids. He texted me his nine-month sobriety coin. It scared me with the triangle. It scared me. And it says, be true to thyself. Ugh. I don't know how adultery is supposed to stop with these meetings. It just seems to me that this is still all about alcohol, whether drinking or not. After hearing your video, I'll be praying against this deception that Christians are falling into. I have a daughter who just started going too, and now I am worried and will pray for her to be led to a Christian place for her addiction. Thank you so much, and thanks for quickly updating my password for your exclusive videos. May God strengthen you, continue to lead to you, Jamie Archibald. Oh, Jamie, you fucking dumb, sad clown of a lady. <laughs> he's not He's not working out all the time and hooking up because of the devil. He's just no longer uh, in a relationship with a woman where I'm strongly guessing he was in a, in a sexless marriage. Not that it's Jamie's fault. Could be this, this dude could be a douchebag as well. I don't want to come across that way. But just this lady seems so sad that she just she wants her drunk husband back. You know, she prefer him not to be drunk, but she'd rather have him be a drunk and what doing what she wants than to be doing his Spartan fitness challenges and fucking knocking it out with his AA ladies. Oh God, I bet their sex life was terrible. Man, stop wasting your time blaming the devil for your broken marriage, right? I don't know much about you, Jamie. 
<laughs> to stop it. I do know that's not the road you're going down. Not going to put anything back together. This is not helping anything at all. Move on with your life, right? Stop blaming, you know, the devil. Uh, you know, st- definitely stop subscribing to this idiot's private videos. I can only imagine the horrible information he's he's giving your head with uh, through private videos, as dumb as his public video is. Do some therapy, do some couples counseling if you can talk your husband to that. But fucking come on, stop, stop, dog. And then really, you're, it'll be the lady trying to talk your your separate husband and your daughter out of getting sobriety help. And why are the two of you alcoholics? This sounds like there's a lot going on. This doesn't sound like a, a good home, happy home you guys had. I also watched a roughly hour-long Crowley documentary. It was called Satanist, Aleister Crowley, the most wicked man in the world. And a pretty interesting documentary, man. Narrated by the great Scottish actor Brian Cox. I love that dude. Love his voice, man. That's the guy, older guy. He's been everything from uh, Super Troopers to Troy. A lot of comedies, too. Played Churchill in the 2017 film with the same same name. And uh, user Rick Sanchez takes an odd stance in the comments sections, uh, saying, Came for the baseless allegations, wild misrepresentations, and outright lies about Crowley and his work. Leaving totally satisfied. Right. Because Crowley wasn't an eccentric sexual deviant, you moron. As, as, and as if he didn't want that image out there. That's what weird thing about some of the Crowley defenders you find in these comment sections. And there's, there's, there's gold. There's gold. idiot gold in these threads. <laughs> Where it's like, he loved it. He loved being reviled. He loved repulsing people. You know, if, if anything, the document I watched, which didn't say anything, if anything, it said less uh, stuff than some of the stuff in the books. Um, you know, he would have enjoyed it, you know, or, or wanted, you know, them to just you know, make his image harsher. They wanted, wanted to, I don't know, make up outlandish tales of him doing more stuff that was more out, outwardly evil. Uh, user XDMBX seems to miss a lot of the documentary. He posts, you say sex addict like it's a bad thing. Creating life really isn't a bad thing. Well, that's two different thoughts, you dumb shit. All right, being a sex addict isn't just uh, having a normal sexual life. Those are, that's those are two different things. Sex is not a bad thing. Uh, mm, not at all. You know, uh, creating life not not a bad thing. How our how our species stays around. Uh, cutting a cross on some dude's chest and having him fuck you uh, so you could bring a Roman god demon baby into the world is at least not good. It's at least not good. If not, I would say kind of kind of bad. At the very least, it's questionable. Uh, and it's definitely not creating life. So what the hell are you talking about? You know, lie, uh, user Jeffrey posts lies, lies, and even more lies. Just another video of Christian religious propaganda bullshit to instill fear in people from discovering the true truth of each individual potentiality, uh, to prevent people from actually experiencing the true reality, true spirituality, true nature, and which exists so deeply within and without, and yet so mysteriously that even those among us whom are awakened still cannot grasp the complexity of beauty within our world. Much love to all those who have the courage to march forward and create their own lives in whatever way they desire it manifests. Many blessings. I love when people project their meanings onto things that don't share that meaning, Right, like this person, you know, doesn't sound like a, a bad person. You know, he's a little, little angry about uh, Christianity, you know, and, and, and religion. But he's got his, you know, what sounds like a, some kind of positive spirituality for himself. But but then he chooses to have Aleister Crowley represent this positive spirituality and be this great bastion of individuality. No, dude, he was also a fucking just kind of degenerate asshole. You know, just somebody who was a fucking terrible father, a terrible husband, just this trust fund douchebag who plays his fucking magic games and, you know, uses it to justify his, his sexual obsession. 
that's not like some free love kind of hippie person that you're making him out to be here. You know, it's like when he was used in the or the counterculture revolution of the '60s. Everyone, you know, went to Crowley, and you know, like this great example of kind of standing up to the man and standing up to this Christian patriarchal society we live in, this oppressive society. And it's like, okay, in an overly uh, suppressive religious kind of patriarchy, I don't think that's good. But that doesn't mean that the opposite is good. People do that weird thing in their heads all the time where they're like, well, I don't like this at all. And so then they go to somebody who's the opposite of that and they're like, that's what I like without thinking that this opposite thing may be just as fucking ridiculous as what they don't like. It's just another extreme equally horrific in its own way or worse. It's like, dude, man, that that post would be, you know, meaningful and insightful uh, if if, if Alistair's philosophy had brought any good into the world. But, you know, it didn't unless you count a bunch of, you know, kick-ass future heavy metal riffs, which I don't. Those guys would have kicked ass without Crowley. They didn't need him. You know, he'd go on to die. He's kind of a kind of a washed up, you know, uh, loser. Blew his trust fund money, fucking climbing around mountains and fucking people in the desert. (laughs) Yeah. Oh man. You know, and if we're about about to find out this suck, you know, he also would openly do hard drugs, you know, and, uh, in front of children and, and, you know, and just have these weird sex magic rituals in front of kids, you know, and he was just so, so angry. Uh, he wanted to bring down society and bring these malevolent spirits into the world all, all cause of why, you know, like, or or why, because, because God took his daddy too soon. I mean, fuck Alistair Crowley. Uh, he's interesting, uh, to read about for sure, but he, he was hardly a role model. Okay. Okay. One more. User religion is cancer. That's an aggressive. That's an aggressive title. Uh, post anyone who can piss off a Christian just by existing. He must have been a good person. And again, this is what I was just talking about. This polarizing idiot speak. And I'm so sick of it right now. I'm sensitive to it because it reminds me of the current political climate of our country. This whole Democrats versus Republicans, just bullshit. You know, and maybe that's easy for me to say because I'm you know in the middle as more of an independent libertarian. But it just – it makes me sick, man. All this simple black and white thinking going on, fuck, fuck you and your beliefs. No one listens to anyone on the other side. They just they just automatically hate the other side for just being the other side, right? This stupid black and white thinking of what anyone who can just piss off a Christian by existing uh, is good. No, how, how does that make them good? Some people who can piss off Christians can be good. You know, my favorite comic, George Carlin, I think he was great. And he pissed off a lot of Christians, you know, with his pro-abortion and selective kind of pro-suicide rantings. His general disdain of you know life and humanity. <laughs> he also brought me a lot of laughs. Uh, still does for a lot of philosophical insights. You know, uh, you know he wasn't just you know having orgies in front of kids. You know, bringing actual animals into orgies, which apparently may have happened. Trying to bring monsters into our plane of existence, which uh, I do think is impossible, by the way. But you know, but do what that wilt. That whole philosophy of the crowd. Do what that wilt. As long as it doesn't directly hurt others. As long as there isn't violence behind it. That's a message I can get behind. But that's not what Crowley preached. Right? He wasn't. He wasn't a good person. I, I get that he's you know seen as this great champion of individualism. He gets points for you know not becoming a slave to the rigid morality of the Victorian England. But come on, man, he, he took shit too, too far. The other other direction, the religion of Thelema, you know, calls for shaking free of the shackles of care for the feeling of others. That's a quote in favor of engagement in quote blasphemy, murder, rape, revolution, anything bad or good, but strong. That is just fucking juvenile and dumb. Right, that's a Crowley quote from the Sword of Song. Like, really, advocation of rape as long as oh Jesus Christ, Crowley was an anarchist at heart, which sounds cool when you're young and angry, man. I remember love and anarchy. I still have some anarchist tendencies from time to time. You know, I I get the appeal of that whole fuck the man kind of vibe. Totally get it. But if you carry that those kind of anarchistic thoughts to their logical conclusions, if you really actually carry them out in your head, it doesn't end well. Like, do you really? truly want wanton rape, looting, and murder. That's what you want your life to be full of. You know, you also even surrounded by. Do you really want that much anarchy? 
truly, no, no joke at all, not even joking a little bit, well, you know what? If you do, congratulations. Uh, you are also an idiot of the internet. Idiots of the internet. All right, back into this timeline. Back in, and if you think I'm being too hard on Crowley, uh, you won't in a second, I hope. Uh, let's head back to 1921, explore what went on in that little Sicilian abbey, that is a temple of Talima. In 1921, Leah Hersig writes in her diary, I dedicate myself wholly to the great work. I, I will work for wickedness. I will kill my heart. I will be shameless before all men. I will freely prostitute my body to all creatures. All creatures, not just men, not just women, all creatures. Uh-huh. Crowley described his experiences at the Abbey as perfectly happy, my idea of heaven. Crowley and his followers wore robes, performed rituals to the sun god Ra, set, you know, at times during the day, occasionally performing, you know, Gnostic mass, you know, all these mystic rituals, you know, during the rest of the day, they were left to follow their own interests. And that part's all well and good. Uh, but then Crowley offered a libertine education for kids, allowing them to uh, play all day and also to witness uh, sex magic acts, which is uh, – that's not good. That part's not well and good. Look, not cool. Look, I don't think sex should be viewed as uh, shameful or presented to children as being a shameful act at all. I don't – I hate that actually. But I also don't think you should prematurely sexualize children by fucking in front of them. Get what? Get out of here. All right? They don't be – they also don't, don't need to be living in an opium orgy den. Uh, Crowley would travel to Palermo to buy supplies, including drugs, which included heroin. His heroin addiction became to dominate his life at the Abbey. Cocaine began to erode his nasal cavity around this time. No one uh, took cleaning too seriously at the Abbey. You know, wild dogs and cats, fucking feral animals are wandering around. You know, this is a place where kids are. You know, it's filthy. You know, it's getting into like train spotting, requiem of of a dream kind of territory now. Uh, new followers continued to arrive at the Abbey, though, tending to be taught by Crowley. Among them was film star Jane Wolfe, who arrived in July 1920. She was initiated into AA, became Crowley's secretary. Another was Cecil Frederick Russell, who often <laughs> argued with Crowley. Uh, he strongly disliked the same-sex magic ritual that you know uh, converts were required to perform and then left after a year. That fucking cracks me up. You know, like that's the one thing you just couldn't take. You know, I'm out, Alistair. No, don't try to change my mind. Look, I'm out of here. Yeah, I had a good time for the most part. You've been a good host mostly. I like the drugs. Uh, I enjoy the orgies. I don't mind the cats wandering around in here. I just – look, I didn't come here to get fucked in the ass, right? That's not why I came to Sicily. That part does not sit well with me, and, and I don't sit well, frankly, after that ritual. So no thank you, sir. I'm packing my bags and my butthole, and I'm t- getting out of here. <laughs> More con- uh, conducive was the Australian uh, uh, Thelemite. Th- Thelemite. Uh, Frank Bennett, who also spent several months at the Abbey in February 1922, Crowley returned to Paris for a retreat in an unsuccessful attempt to kick his heroin addiction. He then went to London, London, in search of some funds. You know, he's, he's completely out of his inheritance. Probably has been for a while now. He's trying to trying to raise some money from some admirers, you know, to keep his little party going. He's publishing, trying to publish articles in the English Review, criticizing the dangerous drug acts of 1920. He writes a novel, Diary of a Drug Fiend, completed in July. On publication, it receives mixed reviews. He really never makes any money. He puts out a lot of content. But, but doesn't really make a lot of money. But I guess he does get admirers. You know, he makes money. Uh, so I guess in a way he does. He, he was lambasted by the Sunday Express, called for the book's burning, used its influence to prevent further reprints. And that's why a lot of people do like him too. Because like, you know, he was just like, he wouldn't succumb to, to authority. And again, I, I don't think it's right that they were burning his books. I don't think that it's right that he was censored. That I also don't agree with, to be clear in this episode. Uh, and I get his appeal that way as somebody who just wouldn't allow himself to be censored. But... I also don't think what, what they wanted to censor was fucking good. Like, I don't think it was like good literature. I think it was kind of dumb. But again, you, I think you should be I'm a huge, huge proponent of free speech and whatever fucking dumb shit you want to put out in the world. Well, I'm, all right, man. 
I'll stand behind it out of the sense of freedom. Anyway, the Abbey has a dog named Satan. Uh, so that's yeah, yeah that's, that's fun. Uh, <laughs> there were children there, like I said, they run around naked, you know, watching the sex acts. You know, it's magic. Well, watch as my make my penis disappear, abracadabra. There was a nightmare room in the Abbey, an actual place called a nightmare room, where disciples were given drugs, forced to sit there, look at porno- uh, pornographic paintings that Crowley had made. Uh, the idea was that they would uh, concur fear there and be able to be able to overcome it. Uh, the sex magic they practiced got more and more extreme, and allegedly. Uh, one sex magic ritual involved Leah, his scarlet woman, trying to have sex with a goat. Uh, yep, they did a little attempted goat sex. Apparently the goat wasn't as into it, and they didn't really make it work, but they were trying to get some goat fucking. Uh, and that's that's really when you've, you know, you know you've gone too far uh, in, in, into the occult, when, when you're down to fuck a goat or are fucking a goat. Uh, he did seem to draw the line at least on not fucking kids, so, so I guess that's good. Uh, unless the goat was a young goat, which technically would make it a kid, which is what you call a young goat, so possibly some kind of kid fucking going there on there. Uh, if, if they really did have sex with a goat, and this is an allegation that will always be a he said, she said kind of thing, always be, you know, not completely substantiated rumors. Uh, they didn't film any of the sex magic that we know of. It's, it's just that to me is morally unacceptable on the grounds that an animal cannot give consent, right? Like, like it might like it, like it might really like it, but it might also hate it. You just, you don't know. Probably depends on the sex act, I'm guessing, the animal, you know? Maybe the, maybe the goat had the time of its life, for all, for all I know. Uh, you know, I don't know, write, write in. Write in with your own bestiality thoughts to, to Bojangles at timesidepodcast.com. I'm sure that would make for a, a lively and entertaining update. Uh, Bojangles, by the way, just told me that he is uh, very pro-bestiality. So so who knows? You know, Bo, Bojangles is, uh, he, he wears, uh, sometimes around the office, he wears a I Love Bestiality t-shirt. So there's that. Sometimes he wears a crop top. Sometimes a mesh crop top. Uh but even the morally questionable Bojangles does think it's wrong to have sex in front of kids. And then along came Betty May, and Alistair's uh, big boner party uh, goes limp. She takes it She takes it crashing into the ground. 1922, a young uh, Thelemite named Raoul Loveday moves to the Abbey in Sicily with his wife, Betty May. And while Loveday was devoted to Crowley, May detested him, like a smart lady, and detested life at the commune. She later claimed, <laughs> I'm sure, sure she especially detested the sodomy act she must have had to witness uh, being performed on. <laughs> On her husband. I don't like it here. I don't like I don't, it's dirty. I don't like watching you getting fucked in the ass. Ah. Um, she later claimed that Love Day was made to drink the blood of a sacrificed cat, and they were requ- and they were required to cut themselves with razors every time they pr- used the pronoun I. Right? They had to re- get rid of their sense of self. Raoul drank from a local polluted stream and then developed a liver infection that resulted in his death in February of 1923. And to be fair to Crowley, he allegedly told them not to drink the water from the creek. He's like, don't drink that. And then a doctor told uh, uh, them that it was the water that made Raul sick and then killed him, not the, not, the, not the cat blood. But anyway, but she's mad. She's not convinced. She returns to London, and she tells her short of the press, and they eat it up. The tabloid, the Sunday Express, runs the headline, New Sinister Relations of Alistair Crowley, Varsity Lad's Death, Enticed to Abbey, Dreadful Ordeal of a Young Wife, Crowley's Plans. Uh, the paper runs six pieces, published in April and May of 1923. He's headlined the king of depravity, the wickedest man in the world, a cannibal at large. You know, I'm sure they exaggerated a lot of these stories, and the stories are picked up by newspapers in North America and throughout Europe, and this is how he really becomes notorious. The international press leads to Mussolini, the dictator, uh, kicking the members of the Abbey out of Italy. Just fucking get out of here. On April 23rd, British journalist uh, John Bull pr- proclaims Crowley a man we'd like to hang. The fascist government of uh, yeah Mussolini uh, learns of Crowley's activities, you know, and that's why they give him this deportation, uh, and, and without him, the Abbey closes. By the time he's been kicked out of Sicily, his average heroin usage has apparently reached uh, three grams per day, which I don't know a lot about heroin, but that seems excessive. 
1924, Leah Hersig, who was not kicked out of the Abbey, uh, she she finally leaves. She's been trying to keep it going. She joins him in Paris, trying to raise funds for a new Abbey. Uh, doesn't work in the two part ways. August 24, 1924, uh, Crowley meets uh, Dorothy Olson, who uh, within weeks would replace Hersig as as a new Scarlet Woman, guessing she had a little bit more money for him to live off for a while. Uh, conjecture there on my part, but I feel it's probably accurate. Uh, by 1925. Uh, while living in Tunis, uh, Crowley allegedly starts to physically abuse Olsen, shattering the bone surrounding her eye. She writes letters to another disciple uh, detailing the abuse. This in part leads to this disciple, one Norman Mudd, losing faith in Crowley as a prophet. Writes him just one letter that year and has a formal break from him in 1926. The same year, Hersig moves to Switzerland, has a son by one of Crowley's former disciples. Everything's falling apart. She, too, denounces Crowley as a prophet. You know, the band's all busted up. The fucking band leader is broke. He's gone full Scott Weiland. You know, uh, well, I guess not full is not yet. Um, Crowley returns to Paris and goes around to his. Uh, and by the way, that was not a suicide reference with Crow- with Wyland. That was uh, Wyland well before he uh, OD'd, um, which I guess you know is not really a suicide. But well before he OD'd, he was just notoriously a fucking asshole to work with and just you know ruined SDP. From what I've heard, from what I've read. Anyway, Crowley returns to Paris and, and goes around to his former friends and allies trying to gather capital, still trying to raise some money to keep his fucking sex magic party going. Uh, he's still practicing sex magic, spends the next four years traveling around Europe in poverty with a new scarlet woman named Maria de Miramar, who was from Nicaragua. They'd marry and then, then they'd be expelled from France shortly after that. And then that part, you know, sounds kind of shitty. He wasn't doing anything illegal in France. It's just the French government, you know, had heard about Italy. They had sent some Secret Service people to kind of watch him. And then he was seen, you know, talking to some kind of lower nobility. They didn't want a scandal to break out in France. And so they were just like, fucking get out of here. Take your drama, get out of the country, and never come back. He's notorious now. No one wants him. By 1930, the broke middle-aged occultist has moved back to, uh, or sorry, moved to Berlin, and then soon after arriving there, him and Miramar separate, and then by 1932, he's back in England. January 33, uh, he spies a placard in a bookshop window in London and uh, is attached to a copy of one of his novel, Moonchild, and, de- and declares as a sales enticement that Aleister Crowley's first novel, The Diary of a Drug Fiend, was withdrawn from circulation after an attack in the sensational press, and Crowley takes this as an opportunity to sue for libel. You know, he's desperate for money. He sues on the particular grounds that that drug fiend had never been re- removed from circulation. Uh, those sales had certainly suffered. And on the general grounds that the placard implied that his work was indecent. Well, the one-day trial takes place on May 10th, 1933. He's awarded 50 pounds plus costs. And uh, and then kind of bolstered by this win and, and you know, desperate for more money, he attempts to sue memoirist Ethel Manin for writing about him being a black magician. And that doesn't go well. Uh, he doesn't win that one. And here's a transcript from, from part of the court case. I like this. This, uh, this, uh, you know, constable, whatever lawyer is like, did you take, did you take to yourself the designation of the beast 666? And Crowley's like, yes. Did you call yourself the master Theremin? Yes. What does Theremin mean? Uh, great wild beast. Do these titles convey a fair expression of your practice and an outlook on life? The beast 666 only means sunlight. You can call me little sunshine. Yeah, well, kind of funny, but they weren't amused, and uh, <laughs> his case is uh, tossed out. He loses it, and he's forced to declare total and absolute bankruptcy in 1935. His total debts come to about uh, just under 5,000 pounds, zero assets. Um, <clears throat> as he walks out of the uh, courthouse, though, he runs into a 19-year-old woman named Patricia McAlpine, whom he would call Deidre, uh, and she's furious that he lost the case. She's a big admirer. She's more upset than he is. And she propositions Crowley to have a child with her, you know, and and then she's almost forty years younger than him, and already has uh, uh two, uh, and he already has two. Uh, sorry, she's almost forty years younger than him, and he agrees to have uh, a kid with her. And I'm sure he does. 
I'm sure he was just like, thank you, Lucifina. Back in the game. Just hit the jackpot. Well, Crowley and McAlpine perform sex magic. Uh, he's, he's loving life again. She becomes pregnant and has a son. And Crowley names his only son, Alistair Aturk. Ataturk. There we go. Ataturk. And unlike most of his previous kids, uh, this kid lives. Finally has his magic baby. But uh, it doesn't go well for – it doesn't really kind of – it doesn't like settle into domestic life. You know, he's just not that guy. Summer 1937 – he starts a public health business out of the house he's staying at, calls himself a doctor, starts selling elixir of life pills. You know, he's just fucking, he's just a snake oil, snake oilsman, salesman now, or snake oil salesman. There he goes, sells body vibrators, infrared lights. And then his lady and young son leave him by 1937. I'm, I'm sure they do. And from then on, he would have no permanent lodgings, right? He's just some weird wackadoodle, like an elixir of life pill salesman now. 1938, he finds a new lover and patron, wealthy woman, Frida Harris. She gives him two pounds a week for six years, kind of like a little allowance to live on. By that time, his, his, his health is in rapid decline. He's fallen out of popularity. The great beast living on a tiny allowance. Man, how the mighty have fallen. He gets enough money from other sources to kind of continue to support his heroin habits. You know, he takes that habit to the grave. According to one biography, he averaged four to six grams of heroin per day in 43 and 44. And then allegedly uh, 10 grams uh, per day for the first half of 1945, which sounds like – actually, they wrote it as grains. I don't know why I switched it to grams. Maybe that's some other measurement of it. In 1945, in January, he moves uh, for the last time in his life, moves to Netherwoods, the Ridge, Hastings, a little home for kind of elderly, decrepit people uh, in, their, in their final stages of life. He convinces one new young disciple to move there with him. This guy, Kenneth Grant, but Grant's parents convince him to uh, to move out You know, later that year, and now Crowley's alone, and this Grant was, you know, a... Uh, interested in the occult and wanted to be under Crowley's tutelage, but then he's, he fucking gets out of there. And then he just, you know, lives out his last years in this little cottage with visits from his few remaining friends and occasional visits from his children. And he dies on December 1st, 1947, at the age of 72. And that takes us out of this time suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. So Crowley, uh, you know, quite the individual. Uh, and, and by the way, some will argue about his final year, saying that he died surrounded by friends and fellow intellectuals, and he didn't die penniless, and everything was great. Others will say he wasn't, you know, evil at all, but just a victim of Christian persecution and r- rigid religious uh, authoritarians. Just didn't like that he wouldn't toe the line, and there was all this propaganda about him. And I'm sure that some of his life was sensationalized, but man, nothing about his life speaks to me about him being a good dude. You know, I'm not a huge poetry buff, uh, but he did seem to have some real talent as a poet, an artist, an author. He was interesting. He was charismatic in some circles. But the, but the whole live only for your desires, hedonist philosophy of his is just so gross to me, and it's always been gross. People who just like, you know, do what thou wilt. It's just, it's so fucking selfish, right? I mean, yeah, do, do what thou wilt as, as long as that's okay, like indecent. But what if you're a piece of shit, you know? That's kind of, I, don't, I don't trust everyone's nature with that. And, and, and I say this as someone who's lived, you know, uh, almost their entire adult life kind of doing what, what, I, what I wilt to a certain extent as, you know, as being a comedic artist, you know? It's not like I've, you know, worked every gig that I wanted to work. Like, you know, it's not like it was like this perfect road. But, you know, I never never uh, had to have, you know, not absolutely had to have a day job since I was like, like 23, you know, that wasn't something in, in the arts, and a pretty, pretty selfish career, really. You know, as a comic, your career is literally all about you. But I still make choices for other people all the time and, and glad, glad to do so. You know, I moved to Idaho for my kids, not for my career. Love Idaho. Happy to be here. But it's not like it was, a, you know, uh, an amazing career move. I mean, it's, it's worked out great. I'm so happy. But, uh, but, but it, you know, would have, it could have easily turned the other way. But that's what you do when you have kids. You sacrifice. Alistair did not sacrifice for anyone. 
You know, he just seemed to take, to, and to what end? What spiritual enlightenment, hedonistic pleasure, you know, uh, finding out these big secrets, you know, these solving these mysteries of the universe. Did he solve anything? Did he solve fucking anything at all? Uh, he got some STDs, made, you know, had some estranged kids, got addicted to drugs for most of his life. And I feel like that's what a kind of a life of unbridled, unbridled hedonism, that's where it leads you, you know, to ruin, <laughs> you know? Yeah, to being alone, and I, and I guess we all die alone, you know, in our way. But at least some of us can feel the love of our loved ones as we pass over. But not not not, not Alistair, man. His life reminds me of this great Doug Stanhope bit, like the final years of his life. Stanhope, one of my favorite comics of all time, maybe my favorite comic working today. Not for the faint of heart, but you time suckers are far from being queasy, so you, many of you probably would enjoy him. And he had this bit a couple albums back uh, about living like there's no tomorrow, about people who say that this whole hedonist philosophy about like, man, live like there's no tomorrow. But then he has this thought in the bit about like, yeah, but but what if you don't die? What if you live like there's no tomorrow and you go fucking live it up at the casino and you just bet it all on, you know, black on the roulette wheel, you know, you just throw it all on the blackjack table, but then you don't die, you know, but then what do you do? You know, you've drank all your money away. You got STDs and unwanted kids. And then he says, you know, maybe it's time to live my life like my dad's not sending me money anymore. Exactly. You know, it's like I admire Alistair's conviction and courage to defy convention. He, he didn't seem to care what mainstream society thought of him. That is admirable uh, to in a sense. You know, I, I just wish he could have put that courage and conviction to better use, you know, maybe fight on behalf of the poor and oppressed instead of just fighting to be able to stick your dick wherever you please. You know, to quote the great philosopher Ozzy Osbourne, uh, Mr. Crowley, what went wrong in your head? Oh, Mr. Crowley, <clears throat> excuse me, did you talk to the dead? Your lifestyle to me seems so tragic with the thrill of it all, you fooled all the people with magic. You waited on Satan's call. But that call never came, did it? All that magic and what trick did you really ever perform? You know, you trick yourself into thinking you could connect with other worlds when you didn't even manage to really connect, you know, with this one. Well, you know, for yourself, you disconnected. And then it was just all over. It's all over. And now we take a few more looks back at the strange days of Aleister Crowley with some top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, in 1898, the 23-year-old Aleister Crowley was initiated into the occult group, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Founded by a group of Masons in the late 19th century, the society embraced mysticism and the occult. Other members included novelist Bram Stoker, Sherlock Holmes, uh, creator Sir, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, poet William Butner Yeats, Butler Yeats. Yeats. Uh, Crowley was drawn to the group by their shared interest in alchemy, though some biographers have suggested that Crowley may have initially infiltrated the organization under orders from the British Secret Services, which I doubt. Uh, number two, Alistair developed the spiritual philosophy of Thelema, which centered around the concept of do what thou wilt and personal freedom. And for Alistair, uh, what he wilted to do was, was mostly drugs and sex. Number three, Alistair once tried to literally fuck a demon out of the desert. Uh, not a lot of people can say that. Number four, Alistair was vilified by the press as being the most wicked man in the world. He was not. Every murdering dictator in human history, and there have been a lot of them, were all more wicked than Alistair Crowley. Weirdest may have been most appropriate. Uh, he once broke up with a dude for coming too fast into his butt while they tried to summon the Roman god of Mercury. That's pretty weird. And number five, new info. Alistair Crowley is President George W. Bush's grandfather and Barbara Bush's father. Now, while that's not true, it is a popular internet rumor. Uh, especially uh, years back, based on Barbara's mother, Pauline Pierce, being in Paris during the 1920s and possibly partying with Crowley eight months before the birth of Barbara Bush. And thanks to Idiot to the Internet, thousands of people still believe this to be true. Ah, oh, man, don't believe everything you hear. Uh, but do believe most of what I tell you, unless I tell you I'm lying. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Alistair Crowley deposited in the suck bank, tossed in the suck stack, washed, dried, folded, placed neatly on a suck shelf in the suck closet. 
Now go out there and grab some tickets. Come fucking see me. April 20, 21st. Go balls deep in those Salt Lake City shows. San Francisco punchline, April 25 to the 28th. Do it. Get in there. Cleveland next week. Charlotte, Atlanta, Birmingham, Huntsville, Nashville, Houston, Dallas, San Antonio. All in one week of comedy. One big week of comedy coming up, man. More tour info at DanCummins.tv. Check out those dates. Snatch up some ticks. Thanks to Harmony Velikamp, Jesse Dobner, the entire Time Suck team, the Bit Elixir guys, man. Special, special thanks to the new member of the Bojangles research team, Heather Rylander, for kicking off this week's research and suggesting this topic. I hope I did it uh, as well as she hopes. Uh, thanks also to Michael Suzio, Nick Perry, Ryan Hansen, Brian Minton, Nathan Scott. I'm sure many others I missed for suggesting this suck topic. Thanks for all the reviews and spreading the suck, man. That's you know we're able to keep these bonus episodes going because you guys just keep spreading the word, man. Oh man, damn near three thousand iTunes reviews, which is unbelievable to me. It happened so fast. Best way you can help the show is to spread the word. Post on social media. Tell your friends. Tell your coworkers. Reference it on Reddit. You know, I don't know. Fucking walk down the street with a goddamn sign. Whatever you need to do. Spread the sweet suck. Every review helps. Monday topic coming up. Twick, man. The Bielski brothers. The real life story of a Polish Jewish family that the uh, that inspired the Daniel Craig movie Defiance, a family that organized a militia, fought back against the Nazis with the mission to save as many Jews as possible, and they did save many. Powerful story of courage and compassion. Probably not as weird as today's suck, but possibly much more inspiring and, and even interesting. Uh, and I say possibly more, definitely more inspiring, <laughs> possibly more interesting. And now I bring you some time sucker updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker updates. Starting off with a heavy one from Time Sucker Devin. Man, Devin, I hope you're listening, brother. And I appreciated our email exchange the other day. Devin writes in saying, Dear Master Suck, my name is Devin. I've been a fan of your stand-up for years. Your podcasts are a wonderful distraction from work. My favorite episode is Kurt Cobain. And that's when I realized you actually give a fuck about us. And hearing your speech at the end about hanging in there really helps me out. I'm writing this message to say thank you for all you've done. You're the coolest, most caring comedian I've seen. I'm in a very dark place right now. In my life, and I may not pull through. Don't fucking say that, Devin. You fucking pull through. I overthink most bullshit. Dude, I hear you. I hear you on that, man. It's hard to turn the voices off sometimes. Uh, you know, uh, to a point, you overthink them where he says uh, where it breaks me down. Your podcast helps me escape for an hour or two. I greatly appreciate that. I'm seeing a therapist right now. Yes, good call. Fingers crossed that'll help, but enough about me and my bullshit problems. It would mean a lot to me if you give a shout out to my two best friends, Drew and Charlotte. Uh, to my best friend Drew, sorry, in Charlotte, uh, uh, Charlotte Stotwell, Shotwell. Sorry, the sentence reads: If you give a shout out to my two best friends, Drew and Charlotte Shotwell. So I'm not sure if it's sorry. I'm not sure if it's should I ask you? I guess if it's Drew and Charlotte or Drew in Charlotte. Whoever you know what fucking Drew, you know who the hell you are. You want you fucking send another update? Um, but yes. Yes, uh, without them, I would have uh, taken an early exit years ago. They mean the world to me. I could never repay them back for all the love and caring. Uh, hopefully, the shout-out will be a good way to start thank, t- t- thanking them. Uh, for your, thanks for your time. Keep on sucking. P.S. You should do an episode on Henry Rollins. He's a punk rock icon. I think you'll find the life he is living very interesting. Hope to hear back from you. And then we had our little exchange what we did talk, which was nice. And thank you, Devin. Uh, you're right, man. Henry Rollins, super interesting. Uh, random trivia about Rollins. Uh, I've never met him, but I was on an episode of the Storyteller Show on Comedy Central. This is not happening with him. Uh, I think it was a season premiere of two or season two or season three. Like it doesn't matter. It's on YouTube now. But the other, there was just me, you know, for the televised version of the episode. It was just me and Henry Rollins, and we we're both sharing uh, stories of getting messed up on hallucinogens. And I never got to meet him, 
sadly, because but I did but I do think it's cool because I'm also a fan of him. That I got to be in the same episode with him. Uh, we taped on different days, and then they, you know they cut it together. But uh, man, glad I can help you. You know, uh, kind of get distracted from this dark place, Devin. Man, uh, really glad, man. Uh, bring a little sunshine your way. I, I love that you're getting some therapy. I hope this, the coming spring helps you out as well. I know this time of year, uh, my mind's always the darkest, man. It's always the cloudiest. You know, just because of the fucking gray winter days start to weigh on my brain muscle, start to get me thinking some crazy thoughts from time to time. Um, and I do have some other random advice, you know, maybe in addition to what your, whatever your therapist is saying, find something to look forward to. This, this helps me so much. I know this may sound just simple and obvious, but find something to look forward to and always have something to look forward to on the horizon. I feel like that keeps your mind focused on the possibilities of tomorrow and not the troubles of yesterday or the present. Right, I'm mean, focusing on something could be as simple as like you know getting out of fucking jail, uh, or having a sunshine uh, in the weather in the weather forecast. You know, it could be a weight loss goal, it could be a weight gain goal, it could be a job you want, it could be something you're saving up to buy, it could be a fucking video game you want to get, it could be a class you want to take, a skill you want to learn. Maybe you want to pick up the guitar, maybe you want to play the skin flute. You know, that's a cheap one. <laughs> you know, but for real, man, like just pick something, and then when you get to pick something else. Always have something to look forward to. Forever forward, my friend. Forever fucking forward. Love you, man. Uh, Amelia Earhart update. Time suck episode 55. The remains of Amelia Earhart may have been found. Graham Bagshaw, Will Burnson, uh, Avery Augustino, uh, Chris Aaron, Jake Bag of Donuts. Love that handle. And more brought this to my attention. Bag of Donuts wrote in saying, yo, Suck Master D. Here's an update on episode 55 from Millie Earhart. Looks like they finally may have fucking found her. Smack dab in the South Pacific, like you said, she, or where you said she might be. This is so cool. Uh, Jance uh, using several modern quantitative techniques, including Fordisk, a computer program for estimating sex, ancestry, and stature from skeletal measurements, found the hoodless, found that hoodless, this is all about, you know, they found these bones years ago, and now the new technology is, is saying uh, that the, the, the initial diagnosis, uh, the initial interpretation that they were not Amelia Earhart, that interpretation was wrong. And it says that this hoodless person had incorrectly determined the sex of the remains. The program co-created by Jance is, is used by nearly every board-certified forensic anthropologist in the U.S. and around the world. The data revealed the bones have more similarity to Earhart than to 99% of individuals in a large reference sample. The new study is published in the Journal of Forensic Anthropology. Jance also compared the bone lengths with Earhart's. Her humerus and radius lengths were obtained from a photograph with a scalable object. The scale was provided by Jeff Glickman of uh, Fotech. Her tibia length was estimated from measurements of her clothing in the George Palmer Putnam collection of Amelia Earhart papers at Purdue. A historic seamstress took the measurements, which included the inseam length and waist circumference of Earhart's trousers. Anyway, keep on sucking, motherfucker. Sorry I missed you in Baltimore. Recovering from back surgery. Until next time, faithful space lizard, Jake Bag of Donuts. Dude, thank you, Jake. And I love the technology that can go into what we can do now. That's amazing. They can find like one old photograph, and as long as it has a scalable object, you know, some little can of what fucking can be a soda can, and, they, and as long as they know what size that is, they can figure out everything else now about like how, how big the person was. That's, that's amazing, man. And uh, yeah, I did a little further research. I clicked the link you gave me, read that article. And yeah, this group of researchers, this you know, including this person, Jance, uh, you know, they believe now that she died as a castaway on the island of Nukumaro. Uh, man, what a terrible way to go. That little island's part of the Phoenix Islands in the Western Pacific. Uh, it's a coral atoll, no more than six kilometers wide, 3.7 miles. Briefly occupied in the past by incredibly small numbers of people uninhabited uh, today. What a fucking terrible way to go out. Man, who knows if her and Noonan, you know, both lived initially, survived the crash, or if it was just her, and then you're stuck on this island. Ugh, what a bummer. Of it. I'm glad we have closure, but man, I would much rather die in the crash than to make it onto an island. You know, you actually do crash land, and then you're just stuck there, and then you just fucking die. What, dehydration, exposure? Ugh, starvation? <laughs> 
Oh, man, just let me die in the crash. Last update, thanks to Time Sucker Matthew Chapman. Oh, man, I'm going to have some cool picks down the road. He's giving me some gifts in San Antonio, and he also just got me uh, um, certified as a reverend. Now I just got to get my doctorate somehow. He, Matt, Matt actually bought me the honor, <laughs> honorary title of Grand Master Brain Wizard from the Universal Life Church, and I'm now officially a Grand Master Brain Wizard and officially a pastor, and I guess I can do weddings. You know, I just got to do a couple more steps, something real quick. It's all, all ready to go, and I can officiate now. So who knows what trouble that will lead me into. <laughs> thank you, Matt. You guys blow me away, man, with your kindness uh, and just uh, how cool you guys are. So thank you, uh, Matt, and thank all of you. Uh, Devin, bag of donuts. Uh, have, have a great weekend, and I'll be talking to you on Monday, and those were some great updates. Time suckers, I needed that. We all did. All right, time suckers, space lizards, have fun. Have fun this weekend, but not fucking a goat on an island fun. Not bringing a demon out of the desert fun. All right? So have a, have a less fun than that while you keep on sucking. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu accreditation.